thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. I see this light swing around. My brain's first thought was, we're dead. That's a Sam coming off the rails. And we're, oh, no, no, no. That's a truck on a road above us. We're doing, I'm sure, a better part of 600. And 111 going that fast, you can't hear it coming at you. So this guy's minding his own business, and suddenly he's as close as you get to a jet without actually getting hit by it. He's probably still cleaning his trousers out. Hello and welcome to episode 183 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. This week we're talking about the F-111's role in Desert Storm 33 years ago. And I, my two guests, we sort of jump right into it, but we do come around and introduce everyone. So since it's a longer interview, let's get right to it. Here we go. All right, guys. Well, I don't even remember how we got started on this idea. I mean, was one of you that reached out or who reached out to connect all of us? One of the guys in our squadron, Digger Wells, um, knows you, I guess. Okay. He and I worked together at American Airlines, so all right. So he kind of hooked us all up. And he said, even though you've had an episode on the F-111, you need to get Gwyn Bob and uh, Rim in here and talk some <laughs> Desert Storm stories. Is that it? Well, it, it hit the wide band squadron email list and, uh, hey, anybody want to do this? Uh-huh. And I, I have reason to be down here anyway. My dad lives uh, up near Disneyland, so okay. well, geez, I'll, I'll just do this as a twofer. So I, sure, I'll do that. Give me an excuse to come on down. Well, in that case, let me look over at the camera and say hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Today we're talking again about the F-111. We've got Gwyn Bob and Rim here who have some experiences flying together, too, as I yes, understand, right? Yes, Okay. And uh, we still talk to each other. <laughs> I guess that's like a marriage or something, maybe? <laughs> yeah, every couple of years we have a reunion, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, we had an episode 111 on the F-111, and I thought about trying to hurry up and listen to that before you guys came in so I could remember what I said or didn't say. But in the end, we'll just talk sea stories and Desert Storm and just kind of see where we go. We'll got some listener questions. Hopefully I'll remember to ask you, and we'll go from there. Let's start with you guys, though. Kevin, we'll start with you. Where, where are you from, and what got you interested in the Air Force, and what well, did you do? Well, I've always been, I loved aviation from when I was eight years old. Flew in a, got to see a cockpit for the first time, just like most aviators, and they fell in love with all the buttons and switches. But I uh, graduated from Embry-Riddle in 83 with an ROTC, had a nav slot, went to Mather, got, and got my wings, and then got an F-4 out of there and, uh-huh. and went down to lead in fighter training fight in leader training, whatever. They switched the names a couple times uh, down at Holloman for T-38s on my way to RTU and uh, did a RTU at Homestead. And my first assignment as operational was in the F-4 at, uh, at Seymour Johnson, North Carolina. And uh, flew there for three years. Got tired of the air-to-air thing. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, just got, I love the air-to-ground and I wanted to go low and fast. And so F-111 slot came available and I grabbed it and went to Mountain Home in, in 88. 
and uh, on to Upper Hayford. And so did Upper Hayford for three years, and including Desert Storm, had a lot of good flying in England. The tour itself or the personal life wasn't great, but the flying was amazing. The, the squadron was amazing. And I uh, still have lifelong relationships there with those guys. After Desert Storm, I went back to Mather as an instructor and um, did that for about a year and not even a year, only about six to eight months. And, uh, and then they had the RIF come up in, in 1990. Production and force. Production and force. Yeah. And I knew they were targeting the 83-year uh, group, yeah. so I knew what my number was coming up. My wife and I said, where do you want to go and get a free pass? So I was like, let's go back to Turkey where we met. So we met in Turkey. I'll go over that story later. But <laughs> we went back to Turkey. I was chief of plans until I got my got my notification. <laughs> and then care about afterwards, after, after the Air Force, uh, well, basically got in the airlines and doing nav data, and that's what I'm doing today with American Airlines. All right, still doing it? Yep. Oh. I love it. You said Embry-Riddle, uh, which campus? Uh, Daytona Beach. Okay. Yeah, I didn't, uh, see, my wife at the time lived in Arizona, and I, I didn't even know about the Prescott campus. Mm-hmm, I good. just know my mom and my sisters, they all lived in Florida. I said, well, that'd be a no-brainer. Let's just go to Daytona, and Daytona's a party town anyway. And I was young <laughs> and wild. I was like, let's, let's do Daytona. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I toured the Prescott campus when I was at UC Irvine my first two years because I didn't get into any of the schools that had a ROTC that I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I went out there, and I loved it, but I just remember thinking, I don't know how I'd afford this. Yeah. So I didn't even apply and uh, ended up happy ending for me was I got a two-year scholarship for ROTC and a two-year transfer to UCLA. So that well, was I, I was kind of a two-year at Embry-Riddle. Right. I actually did a junior college in California okay. up at San Mateo. Sure. Got my associates there. And then, uh, yeah, I had to work my butt off to just to pay my rent, you know, when I was right. in Daytona. But yeah. typical story for <laughs> young college kids. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Gwen Bob, how about you? Where do you get your start? And uh, Well, I guess I got my start when I was about four years old walking through living room my parents were watching tv and there was a john wayne movie called flying leathernecks it was on and i went it, my you could hear my head ring it's like <laughs> it just got struck like a bell yeah. and i go that's for me wow. and uh, so i graduated high school and uh joined the rotc unit at university of southern california ultimately uh, just a walk-on and ultimately got a three-year scholarship out of that, I went to pilot training at Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma, and I, w- I did pretty well pilot training. The guys who got fighters out of NAV school, they were like absolute top of the class. Our number one guy got F-15s, and I was okay, but I wasn't number one, and, and but I still was going to get a fighter, and I'm thinking F-4 probably, and out of the blue comes an F-111. F-111s never, ever went to pilot training graduates because you needed a thousand hours of time, fighter time, to be in the left seat of the airplane. And the Air Force ultimately decided they couldn't man the system that way and decided they were going to give a go at throwing nuggets in there. And there were seven of us that got tossed in, so it was kind of an interesting experience. A lot of high-level monitoring going on that we didn't know about at the time. Anyway, so I was a cannon for about a year and a half, and uh, they needed somebody upper Hayford. I was up at Stanavel taking my test, got a phone call. Hey, you want to go to Hayford? Why are the military personnel people calling me at Stanavel? I'm a lieutenant. Yeah. Nobody cares about lieutenant. <laughs> and I thought where, about... Where's Hayford, sorry? Oh, that's that's where, uh, in England. Okay. I, I, a little back, that's uh, near Oxford, England. Right. It's one of the two F-111 bases there. And I wasn't married at the time, so I gave that about a quarter second of thought. 
because I was in Clovis, New Mexico, Yeah, the other name for which is so far from heaven, so close to Texas. <laughs> uh, and so went to Hayford. I had a tour over there, a three-year tour, and then uh, got out of the Air Force, went to work with a buddy of mine. He's starting up electrical engineering company, and I did that for a couple of years, and then I just decided I missed, I missed the Air Force. I miss the people. I miss there's a whole bunch of stuff I just missed. I did a good job. I liked what I was doing, living on the beach, up Manhattan Beach there. That was all okay. Anyway, all the other pilots are getting out thundering herd to join the airlines, and this one guy swimming in the opposite direction. So I went to Mountain Home, requalified in the airplane, was uh, RTU instructor, went to fighter weapons school while I was there. And uh, after two years at Mountain Home, went back to Upper Hayford, back to the 79th Squadron. Four years there. After that, Air Command and Golf College, three years of the Pentagon, and then I went to Del Rio, Texas to be the XO in Navy speak of a T-37 squadron there, and then I'd been doing that for about a year and a half, that wing chief of safety, and then I got a call from the wing commander asking me, in the way that means you're going to do it, <laughs> to go to NAS Whiting Field to be the skipper of VT-3. And that was the same reaction I had, was like, what? <laughs> I had no idea that there were joint training squadrons, that Vance Air Force Base had one and a counterpart at um, Whiting Field, where half the students and half the officers were from the other service, mm-hmm. uh, instructors, and every other commander was from the other service. So uh, I ended up my Air Force career with two years of BT 3 at Whiting Field. Then right after that, went to immediately after retiring, flew with Northwest Airlines. Well, f- furlough flewed. Flew <laughs> yeah. furloughed. I was furloughed You're for You're on the seniority years. list. Yeah. I was with uh, Northwest for about five years, got furloughed the second time, and decided that really wasn't something I wanted to do any more of. Got lucky, got an interview with FedEx. Wanted to work with FedEx June of 2006, and flew the MD-11 out of Anchorage, and... Uh, 727, 757, 767, nice. and right. then retired, forcibly objected from the cockpit about going on uh, four years ago now. Based on an unavoidable birthday? or Yeah, yeah, yeah one yeah, of those yeah, things. Yeah. They kept counting. Yeah, well, the Senate, I, I, I'm hearing, is taking up the proposal to make it 67. won't do you any good. No. Uh, but for those who are trying to stay a little longer, you might see my uh, VT2 doer bird patches oh, yeah, on the yeah, wall behind me. So that was me in 1993 and four. Guy, uh, we just, just barely missed. Yeah, yeah. So when you got out, were you like only kind of sort of out, like you were still on maybe a terminal leave, or you no, were completely reser- out. Okay. completely separated? So how does that just real quick? And it's not necessarily germane to our discussion today, but what do you do? Do you go to a recruiter? You call? I, that's exactly what I did. Did you? I just walked into a recruiter's office and said, "Hey, I'm." He thinks you're someone looking for directions because you're older. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I said, "Hey, I was a pilot. I was, you know, wondering if it was possible to get back in." And he said, "Sure, but we need a letter." of a recommendation from an 06 or higher and I managed to find one that I hadn't like terminally pissed off <laughs> <laughs> and so I let a recommendation and I think it was about two months I had to get a flight physical sure and uh, all that stuff but it was huh. a matter of two or three months from the time I said I'd like to get back in to when I was in and yeah. I think the the big thing that helped was the exit because the airlines were hiring right. at the time and do they just you know if you get out at 
let's just arbitrarily say March 31st, 1995, and let's say you come back April 1st, 1997, do they just pretend it's, you know, in other words, your, your they clock gave just me the restarts option. kind of thing? They gave me the option. I could have my date of rank suspended for two years, mm-hmm. or I could have come back in as if I'd never left. Okay. And I opted to suspend because it, you know, there's just be a huge gap. You're trying to get right. promoted, and it affects and, your pay scales. And yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of other stuff. But the uh, the big thing is, if I chose the other option, I would have never been a Desert Storm. Oh wow! Because the rank and everything would yeah. have been, I wouldn't have been still in a squadron at that point. Things like that. Okay. So, turned out to be a good good choice. Well, just to demonstrate how little research I did, like I said for today, and also not being a good listener. So, were you both pilots? Sorry, he was the pilot, AC. I'm the Western Systems Officer. Okay, real, and you're right. Okay, so. so when you went to the F4, you meant in the back, seat. in the back, and then the right seat of the F111. Correct. Okay, yep. you said you went to American, but not in a pilot capacity. Correct. When I got out of the Air Force, looking for work, I spent about 300 resumes out, and I couldn't find anything. Really? So, finally found a job at America West as a ticket agent. Yeah, at a ticket counter, doing $6-an-hour job, getting screamed at by little old ladies who uh-huh. lost their luggage after flying 19 combat missions, and it's like, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so I ended up doing that, gosh, three to six months, uh, finally found a job in engineering, and uh, the manager of engineering says, you're perfect for a nav database job. Why don't you come work for me? So okay. that's how I got in the nav database world. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. I sometimes tell both the flight attendants and the gate agents, uh, I, said, I think you have a harder job than me. I only have to deal with one guy yeah. uh, or gal, but you got to deal with all the unhappy people. So. Yeah. It was, right. it was a very tough time in my life, but it was, uh, yeah. it was, it was rewarding. Well, sounds like it. Good. So imagine before we get into good, hopefully, war stories – Imagine a person either didn't listen to episode 111, which I don't know if you had a chance to check that out, but it was with two gentlemen from Australia. Yeah, I saw, yeah, I, I okay. listened to that. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Or imagine you're a person who's in his early 50s and is busy day to day and can't remember what he recorded two years ago. And give us a high-level overview of the F-111. I mean, we don't need to go into every detail on this, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, maybe a little bit about why it came around and what it did and what it was good at. And maybe even if you want to bash on the Navy a little bit, uh, we can talk about it. Tried to land on carriers, but... The 111 came about because McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, decided he knew better than everyone else and that the Air Force and the Navy were spending too much money on what were essentially duplicative weapon systems. You don't need this many different airplanes. We can make one airplane that will do everything for everybody. And this guy was like a super genius person, too. He like stratospheric IQ, and I don't know how that slid. But the idea was you, if you... Sometimes we want an airplane that doesn't use a lot of runway. Because at the time, the F-105 Thunder Chief was the kind of the long-range, air-to-ground interdiction kind of airplane. It was built by North American. I think the joke at the time was if if you built a runway that would go all the way around the world, North American would build an airplane that needed every inch of it. (laughs) So the idea was we want an airplane that goes fast. We want a fighter. We want long-range and we also want to be able to land on unimproved fields. We don't want to have our, and, you know, this makes sense. You want to bottle up your whole Air Force at a couple of big concrete runways. And so it'd be nice if you can get something to do all of those things. And that's where the sweep wing came from, the variable geometry wing, because you could get both the high-speed 
capability and a pretty decent low landing performance, we could easily land the airplane in 4,000. I think take off in about 4,500 feet, uh-huh. land a little bit less than that. It would, In that regard, it was pretty good. The terrain following radar gave us the all-weather, which is really kind of that, that was stealth at the time, night, all-weather. So the terrain following radar, that was good for that. Afterburning fan jet engines, first time that's ever been done, that gave us a lot better fuel economy. But some other things crept up. Like, if you want to go long range, you got to put gas in the airplane. We took off with 30,000 pounds wow. internal. Well, if you're going to put gas in it, then you got to have room for the gas. And then the airplane gets bigger, and our empty weight was like 50,000 pounds. Yeah. And so you can't, you just can't do an air-to-air fighter that weighs 50,000 pounds. Problem mm-hmm. one. Problem two, if you have variable geometry wings, by definition, they're going to be small. They're going to be skinny because as they sweep back, they have to have some place to go. They actually don't have any place to go because a fuselage is there because they don't have any place to go. You've got to have really thin wings. Really thin wings, really heavy airplane, and you've got a really heavy mm-hmm. wing loading. I think we had 155 pounds per square foot of airplane. It's just nuts. I mean, for air-to-air. It's just not, <laughs> never going to work for air-to-air. Now, it, it turned out that those characteristics were very good if you wanted a long-range, high-speed, low-altitude, good payload. We had a really nice attack radar on there. Kind of made the airplane wide. That's mm-hmm. why we had to sit side-by-side side because the radar dish was, you know, like this. And so that's kind of how it came about. It had a lot of development problems. The thing had a bad habit of shedding wings on brand-new airplanes. Thanks. had an airplane with 100 hours on it wing came off, coming off the range at Nellis. There were some problems with horizontal slab actuators that there are little valves that control in the tail of the airplane that control hydraulic flow to move the stabilizers, and they get galled, and then your stabilizer just drives to one position, you lose the airplane. And so, and the reliability issues, and it was, the airplane had a pretty bad reputation for a while. I think it was called the switchblade Edsel at one point. <laughs> uh, the Air Force was sufficiently un proud of the airplane. It never got a name. Never had an official name until the day it retired. That's when the Air Force finally called it the Aardvark. So, which is what everybody called it. Right. Or the pig. Or, yeah, pig. Yeah, Because <laughs> it roots around. Yeah, it roots yeah, around. Yeah. So really, the, the airplane kind of was not exactly a red-headed stepchild, but definitely it was not an F-15 or anything like that. Right. And then Desert Storm came along. Well, Libya, first of all, right. Libya v- really vindicated a lot of things that the F-111 was built for because it just nobody else could do stuff like yeah. that. And then Desert Storm came along, and particularly F-111F, with its paved tack, was just awesome. And maybe slightly off topic, but the everybody knows about the F-111F. It did Libya. It did tank planking. You saw the videos of it blowing up hardened aircraft shelters. That was an entirely different employment than the F-111E. We used ancient, well-worn, hand-tooled manual bombing techniques. Big targets. Uh, Essentially, (laughs) uh, well, actually, it wasn't, we got kind of lucky with some stuff there. We used basically the same bombing techniques as a B-17. Get an altitude over the target, weapon's going to fall a certain amount, Uh you know, when you release it, and you've got to have your release point where the trajectory of the weapon is going to intercept the ground at the target. Yeah. 
Well, back then, you know, they weren't exactly hitting pickle barrels like they claimed to be doing. And we were essentially doing that same thing, mm-hmm. except a lot closer to the ground, a lot faster, and uh, with radar that can aim pretty accurately. But and computers. Well, we, maybe? Huh? No, we didn't have, the F-111E didn't have a weapons delivery computer that was programmed for any of our ordnance that we had. Hmm. And the issue here is, in order to have your weapon hit the target, you have to have it from a predetermined release point and vector. So if you're coming along on TFR and the world's not completely flat, the thing could be nibbling. Or it could see terrain beyond you and start a climb or can decide it wants to go down. And you add that pitch vector onto a dump bomb, and now you're starting to introduce some pretty serious errors. And then on top of that, I don't know if you did any air-ground range work in the F-18, but you call the range controller, hey, what's the altimeter? So you get a good altimeter, and that tells you what your height above the target's going to be, which is also pretty important. Yeah. Because I think, you know, there you get about nine feet of altitude error, which is each hundredth in the altimeter setting. And if, you're, if you've gone 300 miles, you could be a whole tenth oh, yeah. off. And so now you're 100 feet high or low, and with the impact angle, that's now you start because the impact angle would be kind of shallow. You, now you're introducing pretty significant range error. And we made up for that by initially by just carrying a lot of bombs. <laughs> drop so you some carry, early, drop some late. Well, you, you, if you have eight, like, you know, just round numbers, we would have, let's say, 12, two, four, let's see. 12 to 14 Mark 82s. Yeah, 12 to four, yeah, so 12 Mark 82s in our low altitude load. And that would be, you're laying down a bomb about every 60 feet for about 1,000 feet, some number like that. Mm-hmm. So if your target is in that range somewhere, if you're within 1,000 feet, you're probably going to hit it or have it be within that length. But where we got lucky, and I promise I'm not going to drag this out too far, is about <laughs> a month before Desert Storm started, the Air Force delivered to us a mini-computer. Now, that... A, a mini computer be well, like maybe your audience doesn't even know what a telephone booth is. <laughs> about the size of this table. <laughs> it, it was about the size of a telephone booth. It was okay. about three or four feet on a side and about six feet high. Oh, and what it had in it was the uh, WGS database for the entire world overlaid on uh, TPC charting. So you have a layer with the like an image layer of the charts and overlaid on top of that was a layer with elevation data. And then we could, and this is where things get a little exciting in Desert Storm, we found we could very, TPC chart, you don't get any real good, elevations aren't that close, it's very core one to 500,000 chart, it's not, and that's all we had in, in Iraq. We found you could take the cursor and just start pinging along the route. And what we decided we'd do is we'd pick a quarter that was like a mile either side of the target. Do a lot of pinging. Find out the highest elevation of that in that quarter, at plus like two miles beyond the target, beyond the release point, four miles, something like that. So you could let the TFR back on. And we'd add 400 feet to that. Then we'd pick a point prior, depending on how far you were climbing to get to that, where you come off the TFR, hand fly it, and then we'd be hand-flying the airplane at 400 feet above the highest point at about 600 knots, centering up the steering and nailing the airspeed, 
And then we'd solved the altitude problem by some point prior, close as we could get prior to the IP, find a flat stretch of terrain, find out what that altitude was. I got, I got a story there. <laughs> okay, I'll stop talking. So, and then you'd spin the you'd spin the Colesman window right. to get your radar altimeter altitude to that right. elevation point, and then you make your your barrow read that, and now you have your altimeter settings. So and this was all for accuracy. It for was the, all for accuracy, and okay. it would make on just the E model. On the E model, right. and now we were not going to hit targets like the uh, F model was just going to. You know, right. one bomb, boom, done, game but, over. Right. But, but to we, Rim's point, if you had a POL facility, let's say, or an area target of some well, sort. A building. We got some really good. We had a EWGCI site that was on the top of a 3,000-foot ridge. That was our first mission, yeah. That was really, because these guys were coming in. They, had, they pulled, they paddled off 10 degrees nose high. They held it until a leadoff altitude and then zero-G pushover to capture the Barrow altitude, and then one across the target, this ridge line, directly sideways across the ridge line, 400 feet above the ridge line, all at night. <laughs> I hope they paid you well. <laughs> all right, well, so you got the, something to add here? Well, I'll talk yeah. about, the, about the altitude, Cal, um, that is so important. You know, uh, we had one mission, um, probably skipping ahead a little bit here, but uh, in Desert Storm. By the way, we never flew together in Desert Storm together. We flew a lot together in peacetime prior to, oh. and the squadron. As a matter of fact, we might have even had a check ride together. Yep. Um, but in any case, uh, one mission we had a we had a target. It was actually uh, I think it was a transformer, which was a Mark eighty two, twelve Mark eighty twos. No, it was four Mark eighty fours. A transformer. That's where we usually hit our transformers with the Mark eighty four two thousand pounders. And um, doing altitude cal prior, a lot was happening. It was if I remember correctly, usually we have like several aircraft on one target uh, in the package. But in this particular package, Doug and I, my pilot. We had this target, and we were going westbound at Erbil. It was near north of Erbil, up in uh, northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. And did my altitude cal, and bombs came off normally. And then on my way home, I'm thinking, did I do the math right? Because <laughs> if I did subtract instead of added, because prior to the target, there was a town. Mm-hmm. I mean, and just and the, the transformers were like maybe 2,500 yards past the town. I was like, if I miscalculated, those Mark 84s came off prior to. I was freaking out the whole way home, wondering, it's like, oh my gosh. So, Gwimbob Shoes and Chowder, some of our fire weapons guys all got together and said, no, you had it. You did it right. Actually, (laughs) bombs went long. It's like, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's good to hear, right? I mean, for those who think we're just a bunch of warmongers, no, we don't want to drop on cities. We really actively changed attack plans to avoid run-ins, because we knew that our azimuth is always pretty good, but, but if there was a range error that could long or short, long or short yeah. that could hit, I think there was a dam, electric station right near a dam, and there was two. We decreased our number of run-in headings because the ones we would have preferred a range error would have been hitting towns, and we just said, "No, we're not yeah. going to do that." Yeah, smart. Well, I mean, we can go wherever the conversation leads us, but just for fun, again, kind of hashing out the F-111, there's a bit of an alphabet soup with this airplane as well, right? Because you have the suffix, the F-111 all the way up to F, sounds like, or was there even higher? But then then the B was the one they tried to land on a carrier, didn't go too well. But then you have an FB-111, which we have had an episode on, which isn't just an F-111B. It's a, a whole different airplane, but I think, what, slightly larger wing. And was that what they used for... Because that aircraft also didn't have a nuclear role? We all did. Yeah. Every, yeah. I'm not sure if I can say that now, but Lake and Heath and Hayford both had a, a, yeah. an alert commitment yeah, okay. for special weapons. All right. 
So you flew together then, what, in England prior to the war? Is that what you said? Right, okay. yeah. During Basically, when I got there in 88, I'm not sure when you got there, but we flew together, I'd say, half a dozen times together. Yeah. yeah. Rim, you flew both in the back seat of an F-4 and then in the side seat of an F-111. Yeah. How did that change, if it did at all, like coordination is what we would call it in the Navy? Because at Top Gun, where I was an instructor, we had a whole class for the F crews on not only the division of labor, but the things we should be saying to each other and how to say it and all that. Did you find that between the Phantom and the Aardvark? Very, sim- very similar as far as crew coordination. Yeah. Um, I mean, in in the Phantom, when, when you didn't see the guy, he's back there. He, speaking was very important. You had to basically say everything, especially in both air-to-air and air-to-ground mode. you got to be talking all the time. So that's something they taught me as we went along is if you're thinking it, speak it. Okay, so that's what we did. And so when we got to the F-111, I was talking too much. And, mm-hmm. there, and finally, they're just like, okay, all you got to do is basically tell me heading speed, altitude, where we're going next, you know, make sure your weapons are good, and, you know, follow, you know any TF comments you want to make and things like that. So as we went along in the F-111, and especially after we became crewed with somebody, like when we went prior to Desert Storm, they flew us together with our same pilot and Wizzo combination. And Doug and I got to know each other really well. We yeah. very, very rarely talked. And if anything came up important, we'd speak out and talk. But uh, sure. other than that, it was much easier on a side-by-side because you're right with each other. And yeah. And what are your primary role in the F-111? Like in a A-6, right, the person is called a bombardier navigator. And an mm-hmm. F-18 these days, I think it's an electronic warfare officer, mm-hmm. a weapon system officer, and an F-18. What were you called and what were your primary duties? Yeah, it was a weapon systems officer. Okay. Navigation, weapon systems, communication, talk on the radios, fly the airplane when he wants to take a break, things like that. So I did a lot. Of, had a lot of stick time flying what they call Wizzo route, you know, or tactical, you know, out there. So basically, you know, route formation is usually about ten feet out. We're usually about twenty feet out as a Wizzo flying. And yeah. so when we got into fingertip again to weather, I hand the stick back to him, and you know, he takes it for the landing. So basically, did a lot of stuff in the in the cockpit, the coordinating the tactics making sure the navigation on the low level, weapons release, communication. Because so. yeah. a lot of that is, was at that point in time, right, the technology was such that you really needed two people to run it compared yeah. to what you see these days where everything's presented to the one person. Yeah. Gwen Bob, how was the F-111 to fly? I mean, compared to, you'd flown the T-38 and whatever else, but... Did you want me to talk about the alphabet soup for the airplanes? You kind of brought that up. I mean, if you want. Well, again, I think we talked a little okay. bit about it on episode okay. 111, but whatever you think no, people that, that's might. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. So the T-38 was an airplane you didn't get into, you put on. And mm-hmm. it was absolutely the best flying, just pretty small, high performance. Yeah. Going that to the F-111, the F-111 was a very difficult airplane to fly. Really? It was heavily wing-loaded, so it would shed speed like nobody's business. If you G'd the airplane up, you could, let's say you're going 600 knots, full afterburner, and you G the airplane up, you will go from 600 knots to 300 knots in about six seconds. Uh-huh. And G it up meaning five, six, Well, well so many. 600 knots, going a little bit downhill, you could pull very briefly 7.3 G. So okay. that's what the airplane was rated for. But unless you were doing a really steep slice back you just there was no way you're keeping the energy because the uh induced drag with all that wing loading just was just insane so that meant airspeed could get away from you Uh, the airplane didn't have a single set of 
flying characteristics. It would change at every wingspan. Uh-huh. So I know the T-38 and probably the same with the F-18, you knew when you're max performing the airplane, you start getting burble, start feeling like you're running over a little bit of a gravel road. The F-111, yeah, it would do that at 35 wing and do it a lot later at 54 wing. At 72 wing, you'd be spinning before you got. And that was another curious thing about the airplane. Fuselage is very wide, single vertical stabilizer, and then you got that aardvark nose going way out the front that's fairing in that really wide radar dish. Well, at high angles of attack, that really wide fuselage that's carrying all the gas, it gives it all the range, it makes it a heavy airplane, and you know, we all talked about before, starts blanking out the vertical stabilizer. And it is the only airplane ever built that I know of that would spin before it stalled. Yikes. Yeah. So yeah. You, 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 there's none of this, oh, nose drop, and then you, if you keep hauling it in and kick it in some rudder, right. it, it, no, it'll, it'll go, see ya. Yeah. And there was no recovering from it. Really? We've lost a, a number of airplanes where, they, uh, where the airplane would spin. Yeah. Lost one in a holding pattern. I'm no aircraft designer, but I understand it. The way the uh, tail, I don't know if that will work for this camera, right? But if, if you, with enough angle of attack, it blocks the uh, tail. Isn't that why some of these aircraft, F-22, F-18, yeah. a few others, will have them kind of angled out so that they should still get some yeah. clean air? Yeah, that's, no, I know that's why they okay. went to twin vertical stabilizers yeah. and then to canning them outwards okay. to maintain positive directional stability, which yeah. that airplane didn't have. And then, oh, wait, there's more. <laughs> the airplane... You get, so they, one of the first things you did was a demo, where a wing sweep demo. You so you get the wings back, you go on about 300 knots or so, and you turn the airplane upside down. Okay. And now the engines are way below. They're down at the bottom. And so now rotate the airplane back to wings level. And you move the stick, and nothing happened. Because the only thing you had to lift those engines up, there were the, the airplane didn't have ailerons. It had spoilers. And so they aided, they popped up to get the down, to spoil lift out of the down going mm-hmm. wing. Well, they were completely locked out at 54 because they didn't pass that point, they're useless. And if you get the wings back all the way to 72, all you have are the, what we call the uh, stabberons, stabilizers, elevator, aileron. Okay. Did it all. Yeah. And they're really close to the center line of the fuselage, and you're not going very fast. And then you'd, you'd hit the stick, and air seriously, nothing happened. And the only way you could get the airplane to roll was to, you had to unload, take some G off the airplane, yeah, get a yeah. little, and then a little bit more airspeed, get some rudder, and then you know a little bit of rudder to help it out. Where that gets real critical is at Red Flag, some guys were going through the Willie Pete range, and they entered the range about 600 knots, and they're starting to do their jinking and jiving to, mm-hmm. you know, react to stuff. And they had the wings way back because they're going 600. Got the airplane down to 300, and did a ridge crossing maneuver. Uh-oh. And you know what those are? You roll upside down so you don't highlight yourself to heaters from somebody behind you. So what were they not able to do at that point? <laughs> roll. Yeah. Bam. Oh dang. So the airplane was really difficult. It was. Much harder to fly. I got a little bit of stick time in F-15. That's a dream to fly. The 111 was just hard yeah. all the time. Uh, would rip your head off if you gave it half a chance. Well, isn't that why the F-15 was so good, right? John Boyd and a few others who 
derided the F-111 as the idea of a fighter because it was so heavy, the wing-loading and everything mm-hmm. we talked about. It's like, no, 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 let's build one. Of course, then they gold-plated it a little bit. Still a great fighter, no doubt. And then finally you did the lightweight fighter competition, et cetera. I'd love to have a show on uh, John Boyd. But at any rate, uh, that's cool that you got to fly the F-15. Yeah, I was, when I was yeah. in weapons school, I yeah. got to do, got a sortie on that. That was really cool. But yeah. it, it, that proved the F-15E is not quite as good an air-to-ground airplane as the F-111. But it's a hell of a lot better air-to-ground airplane than the F-111 would have been an air-to-air fighter. Yeah, so yeah. you can go from an air-to-air roll to air-to-ground mm-hmm. with reasonable success. The other not, way is the other no, no. The other yeah. way is just not going to work. What's fun about conversations like this is I always notice my guests have certain terminology that makes sense in the moment, but I've never heard before. Uh, you threw out, I think, wing thirty-two, wing. So these shirts, by the way, is that what we're seeing yeah, so here? Right? Yeah, there's three different wing. Right here, we got seventy-two is the first one, which is full aft, and then fifty-four is our normal, normal attack. So mode. that's just if, if if a wing could be straight out, that would be I guess zero. Sixteen, right? 16, well, 16, degrees. sixteen degrees. But was the, the point, right? But just thinking trigonometry yeah. here, yeah. and then just measuring back from that yeah. is the angle from yeah. perpendicular to the fuselage. Completely manual wing sweep. Okay, so there was nothing. I think FF fourteen was automatic. I think. I, I've heard of people talk about it had certain modes, but I, I'm not going to. Ours was completely manual, and you really set the wing sweep. Now, on the landing, you'd be either 16 degrees or 26 for landing or takeoff, maybe 26 depending on your landing CG. But en route or low altitude, it'd be 35 to 60 typically. And it really depends on what you were doing. If we were daytime doing tax spread, then it'd be 35 because you'd be doing a lot of maneuvering. Nighttime, like uh, in combat, it'd be, if we had a long stretch, we were going straight, you know, you'd put the wings back at 60, and we could, they'd, they'd combat tune the engines. And if you tap just a little bit after burner, it'd be going 660 knots with the wings back at 60. We couldn't tap very much after burner. Now, we could go really, really fast. I saw 932 knots in the deck at Red Flag once. Wow. The issue with that, there's two issues. One, you're drinking tankers worth of gas. And at night, there's 60 feet of burner flame coming out the back of the airplane. And you're going going over the the desert area of Iraq where it's fine. They can see it from 20 freaking miles away. So the first stage afterburner would, that flame was contained completely within the burner can. So we could go to one stage of burner, run it up to 660 and then back it up to mill power and then the speed would gradually bleed back to 600 and then we'd so 660 to 600 wings back at about 60 degrees and the airplane just was really fast were these by the way graduations you could hit with the throttles or was it just you know you're in the well, first yeah. stage and was it a continuum or was it like there was clicks? a you go over the hump, and you, there was a we had a nozzle okay. indicator. I think, if memory serves, that you could see as as the nozzle changed, were. that okay. you could see where you were. Okay, we had five zones afterburner, so zone and one. Could you feel each one, or was it just like a continuum? It was really smooth. You really yeah, couldn't okay. really couldn't feel it. Yeah. What happens to get? Let's let's start telling some desert storm stories, but let's lead up to it. Where are you two in August of ninety? Right, because as I understand it, I was in college, but anyone who was. And I talk about this a lot on the show. It's like, look, I don't want a war, but if there's going to be one, I don't want to sit out. So I want to know where you guys were in August and how you got tapped to uh, go. Well, it's all fuzzy. Okay, a lot of brain cells were gone between then and now. <laughs> this was a long time ago, <laughs> yeah. admittedly. But um, basically in 
I believe the squadron was deployed to the Turkey on a normal uh, WTD weapons deployment to Inchilik, and we ended up going, oh, I got something right. Cool. Is that where you met your wife? <laughs> uh, it is, yes. <laughs> All right. You said um, that earlier. That's cool. Yeah, so it was about that time frame, too. So oh. basically, we went there. We're doing normal normal air-to-ground, uh, low-level work up out the Konya range and planning, and then a lot of tensions going on in, in the Middle East during that time. and. And so, yeah, we were there from August, at least I was there from August on. I think uh, we had some squadron swap outs for the 55th and 77th during that time. But uh, that's all, like I said, hazy. But we were there throughout the fall and, and winter of, of 1990. We were in the middle of our weapons training, WTD deployment to Indrelek, Turkey, when Saddam invaded Kuwait. Okay. And we were basically the only forces in the region. And the next day, CNN ran some video showing us taxing for takeoff. And the Pentagon had supplied that to them, implying without quite stating that we had deployed there overnight. (laughs) Not exactly true. Sounds like something my 16-year-old says to us. You know, it's like, manipulate the facts a little bit. No, it's like we didn't say that. (laughs) They got a little Clintonian on on that. But we uh, we rotated out at the end of our three-week deployment. And then the 77th, one of the other squadrons came, and the 55th came. Okay. And so they were doing the normal rotation. And then, and I have no idea, I don't know if Rim has any idea either, they decided, whoever they is, (laughs) that when the 55th came back, the 79th was going to go down and stay until whatever happened was over. In Turkey? In Turkey. Okay. And so I think it was in October we went down. I have no idea why they chose our squadron. No earthly idea. Anyway, they did, and we went down. We were down there, I think, from the middle of October through February-ish, mid-February. And that worked out really well for us because we uh, spent the entire time doing formed crew workups. So we flew with the same guy all the time. Oh, like you flew with Doug, you said? Yeah. Okay. That's why you didn't fly together is because you both got crewed with someone else? Correct. Yeah. And the big difference here is in training – TFR is a pretty intense environment, and so you'd always had to fly a route daytime before you flew it at night. In Europe, the restrictions were so onerous that we could almost never operate below 1,000 feet, the highest altitude for the TFR. And so it was just really hard to train just because of all the peacetime restrictions. Really hard to do, but when we got down to Turkey, then we could... Okay, now this is this is real now, and we developed some techniques that worked out really well. Where the the wizos they they can see they can see the whole ground in front of me, see a map, and mm-hmm. and they give you know, like radar gyrod vectors, easy left, easy right, left right, so fifteen or thirty degrees of bank, and they could run us right down canyons. Each statement yeah. has its own meaning to the yeah. pilot, right? Yeah, and okay. so if he says easy left, then I'm going to fifteen degrees of bank, and I'll say left, I'll go to thirty, gotcha. roll out. And it was really rugged terrain up there in northern Iraq and Turkey. That radar was, like, incredible. You could actually, if you break out the tilt and gain perfectly, you can actually make out uh, fence lines, you know, barbed wire fence lines. It was just, and terrain just stood out at you like a 3D map. And basically, we were, like you were saying, just, you know, we did that in the daytime. We were flying these canyons, you know, rolling 90 degrees in between these canyons and stuff. But at nighttime, we were actually doing a lot of terrain masking with the radar. We could only go to 30 30 degrees. Yeah, Yeah, at night. Well, but, the airplane, if you, if you hit 45, it'd go, that's it, I'm done, and then do a fly-up. Mm-hmm. The 111 TFR would fly 
between two obstacles that were more than 150 feet apart. It's twice the wingspan of the airplane. Wow. So you could put the airplane right up against, you know, 70 or 80 feet away from a cliff. And a TFR would be perfectly Take happy right with down. that. And so the it was really exciting to see it during the day because he's, <laughs> he's in there and he's giving me directions. And I'm just moving the roll. I'm not touching the pitch at all. I'm going, whoa, Nelly. <laughs> and really high. And it was just, uh, there was no way they could see that airplane coming. Yeah. Wow. Hold on, though, Rim. The, you had said the radar was could do that. What was the distinguishing factor? Was it the WIZO, or was it just that particular jet's radar, how well it was groomed? I think it's a combination of both, but, yeah. um, but the you know it takes a lot of technique and experience to get the tilt and gain and, and elevation right on the, on the radar to break it out the way you want to. And there's a lot of touchy-feely getting to play with the thing, but the radar, if you just turned it on and just add it out there, it, it'd just be a bun- bunch it'd of stuff. It would be a Rorschach plot. <laughs> so you got to really t- tilt yeah. and gain and stuff manually, but when you did, it just yeah. it just stood out. Now, I've never been to Turkey, but I have been to a lot of places in the Middle East where folks were deployed more in the sand. How was Turkey compared to some of your folks that were further south of you? It sounds like probably better stationing, all things considered. Oh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, you, why don't you, well, you start? You talking about flying or? Well, when you're not flying too. But. Well, not, well, it was a it was a great place to be. There's a lot of a lot of things to do off base as far as shopping and things like that, and and going around and uh, but. Uh, the squadron life was great there. A lot of guys stayed in tents. The Tigers stayed in the, uh, that was our, basically we we had the Blue Bats. Well, since we were there first, we got the regular, the TDY quarters, or Quonset huts. Okay. So we got paid TDY the whole time. The guys that came after us, they lived in tents, and they were on field rats that so didn't get TDY. <laughs> I actually, I actually was one of I still feel a little badly about that sometimes. <laughs> so Doug and I actually, we made out. We had a, I have a, a friend on base, and they got kind of jumping ahead during the war. They got evacuated off the base back to the states. They gave us our, their house, wow. so we had a two-story house with cable TV and. So I never saw these guys. And, again, I read about <laughs> scud attacks to different bases down in the south. Did you Were you susceptible to any type of scuds? or We got put into a code or four, whatever, the MOP four alert a few times. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I figured we're in a hardened shelter. If a scud comes through, it doesn't matter whether you're wearing the damn gas mask or not. <laughs> yeah. So the guys in Saudi, they weren't drinking beers <laughs> we're in turkey we'd, we'd go down to the to the package store so we you know we'd be at the concrete beach hanging out mm-hmm. you know it, it was pretty yeah. in a way it was a bit of a top gun kind of environment you know that the, the movie we weren't nearly as muscly glisteny kind of <laughs> as that but, well you um, were navy guys I mean, come on. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so, so that, we did have that going against us but yeah, it, yeah. it was really unique working out of turkey the other thing that was super unique about that was that we had we were the first time that had what they call a expeditionary force. We had every aircraft for the package on base. Oh wow! Really, we kind of pioneered that with Red Flag because that's kind of how Red Flag was run. Mm-hmm. But now we were doing it for real, and we had the tankers, the AWACS, EC one thirties, AC one thirties, F sixteens, F fifteens, EF one elevens, B fifty two from Barksdale. B, and then we All were on that one. No, they, they were on the. No, they, came, they flew in and joined us. They, yeah. they, they we we would coordinate with them. They yeah. came in from Fairford. Yeah. Uh, they deployed to Fairford, but okay. uh, Fairford. So we had had all the types on base, which made it a, a hugely more effective coordinated. 
package since you could get everybody you needed to right in one briefing room. I would think at the beginning you did that, but as the missions went on, did it become more and more standard, or did you get together every time? Oh, no, we, you're right. At the beginning, it was yeah. we were really working stuff out because there's there's routes to get in, there's rules yeah. of engagement, there's Altitude all this stuff you got to, and that doesn't for the most part change. So yeah. then it's like, what are we doing today? Okay, got it. Yeah, you, know, you could send that out. So yes, yeah, so as, as yeah. when then we went up to our first week was low altitude, and then we went up. We decided that terrain impact on TFR was our greatest threat, so we we went up to medium altitude, and that required some reworking some stuff but once we got through yeah. the altitude sort and all that it, it really was it came very much uh much more automatic yeah. kind of thing i read a book about the tornadoes early days of desert storm and they got their butts kicked uh, around flying around at low altitude of course they were also attacking airports and runways and all that well they were attacking with the the thing that got them was they were using durandale which That's was a, a runway mission. penetrating right. mission. And the, the way that thing works is it pops off the airplane, parachute comes out to slow it down, and then as, as it swings down, when it senses it's vertical, it fires a rocket into the pavement. But for that to work, I think they had to deliver it at 300 feet. And you had to be going right down the runway. Mm-hmm. Which is somewhat predictable. Well, yeah. So yeah. you just put your AAA guns on either end of the runway. It was... Yeah. It was uh, we had the weapon for a while and hated it because we knew the employment of it was it was not reliable because the the weapon didn't just swing straight down it would, it coned uh, and so it could be going all over the place and uh, it just wasn't effective we got rid of them and those guys got shot down because they were delivering Durantels yeah. every time right down the runway so the AAA in my opinion was a bigger threat than the terrain I mean I you had to have a lot of trust in the TFRs mm-hmm. and it was they had a triple redundant which by definition is redundant, but it's a triple redundant system that gave you a 4G fly-up if anything happened in the system that it detected. In my opinion, flying that first mission in the Gulf War, was uh, the AAA was a much bigger threat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see that the difference in our opinion on this comes from the fact that I was always four-ship flight lead. Yeah, we were and number so, three. <laughs> and so I'd be the first guy over the target. And they had no idea where they were. Well, once I went over the target, <laughs> then they knew, and then the target area is completely yeah. lit up. So two, three, and four, mm-hmm. AAA definitely was a threat to them. For me, it was like la-di-da. So you're doing a four-ship at night? How close? Because you're not wearing night vision goggles, right? No, we're not wearing goggles. So we really was mostly administrative to get four okay. airplanes off the airfield in pretty quick succession mm-hmm. and then coordinate TOTs and ground tracks. So we come in from different axes and and have TOTs that, you know, make sure that none of the frag from the guy before us is still in the air. But once we took off, we kind of, we'd go in uh, pairs, a route formation, and then we'd hit a point where we'd split off and and then we flew our separate low levels. Yeah, because you don't need to be at however many hundred feet uh, from Turkey all the way down, just at some point. We we stepped down. We were a low level by the time we crossed the border, but we stepped down to stay underneath their horizon. What was a typical altitude you might see on the radar altimeter as you're in the tactical terminal phase there? Like 100 feet, 200, 500, uh, We would go at 400 feet typically. Okay. If you started getting shot at, then we'd run it down to 200. And is that something you're doing with a stick or a no, dial? A dial. His dial was <laughs> two, four, like two three, four, 500, 750, 1,000. Okay. And then you had different ride qualities. You could be soft, medium, and hard. Meaning how quickly it's going to bounce well, around push you, you over the edge with okay. negative How heat. close it would get to an obstacle before pulling. So in hard ride, it would 
go up to an obstacle until it needed four Gs. Not really good use of energy and uh, painful. Because you get, you get surprised by four Gs. Yeah. And a negative one G pushover over the Oh, yeah. And so what we would do is go to a medium ride, get a much further pullout, and depending, like if it was a pretty big climb, as we reached the top, we'd go to hard to get the pushover going the other side. Okay. But typically medium ride, 400 feet. Almost never. I think I went down to 200 feet once to escape some guns. Which in peacetime, we never went below 1,000 feet pretty much. Um, except in the U.K., there's one low level. You can go down to 400 feet at night. It's certified. They know there's not power lines and yeah. everything, right? Yeah. So wartime, suddenly, it's like, okay, this is for real. No. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, gosh, I mean, I, I don't know if, if we just want to talk about the opening night, if, uh, if, you, if you all flew or if there's a particular <laughs> night that would make uh, the best story here. But Well, we both flew the second night. Okay. I was the high-time guy in the squadron fighter weapon school grad, so I kind of got put in charge of mission planning, in charge of planning the mission for the first night. So Kevin and I both flew the second night, and over to Kevin. Yeah. Well, hold on. You, so you didn't fly the event you planned? You planned it for someone else or what? So they could get the rest they needed or something? Well, because it was super, it was just really complicated. And we had to get a process down. And, okay. and this is, it's almost like a, for people now, I might as well be talking about the Peloponnesian War. <laughs> practically, because it was so different then. Mm-hmm. Nothing digital. We had paper maps, drawn lines, uh-huh. you know, pulling headings. Writing down, you know, the flight plan. I had to figure out ballistics, decide what weapons you're going to use. I think the most, the highest technology we had there was the box we programmed the offsets in. I can actually put in in feet, lateral, long, longitude wise, the offsets to a target. That, like if the target's hard to find, but something mm-hmm. near it is easy to right. find. And normally we'd have like four or five offsets per target, and so we're out there calculating on the map, you know, what that offset is, and put that in the box, and and we turn it with a little screwdriver to make sure that the offsets are right, and then. When the crew comes, they take that box and they plug it in, and, and that's what they're actually wow. using to, for their offsets on their mission. So. Okay. Well, between the time zone changes and when the – right, he, there was a deadline. I think it was January 15th. So, I, What was the first night? Was it 16th or 17th? The morning of the 17th, I believe. Yeah. So like after yeah. midnight on the 17th. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. flew what? After midnight on the 18th? 18th. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's hear about it. Okay, so that first that first mission, we came in and alarms went off prior to us getting to the squadron. And our we had like twenty of us in, not twenty, about ten of us in the van. Alarms went off. They pulled. We weren't even at the gate yet. This guard wouldn't let us in, so we're all running down into the ditch and we're covering up for the alarm going off cause because there's incoming the scuds possibly. So. Yeah. So anyway, we're, we're doing that, and they, they gave us the all clear. We finally got through. We cussed out the guards for not letting us into the squad, and we're yelling at them. says, we're crew. We want to get to our jets, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up going in. And that first night that we flew, the mission plan was already pretty much done. So the other team did it. We basically had two teams, A team, B team. So Doug and I uh, get out to the jet. Our target that first night was a GCI site just uh, in Kirkuk. And they were basically we're using CBU-58 cluster bombs. And basically, we went in, departing the, uh, the uh, on the ramp, which was about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, probably earlier than that, probably closer to midnight. But we ended up going out and taxing out Padre, who's our squadron chaplain, was there blessing us all and praying wow. for us as we go out. And uh, we slid him. We, we go out, and we're basically taken off in... Um, as, as a package, uh, what was about uh, 20 second departures? Well, uh, for the one levels, it was 10 seconds. 10 seconds. You see, I forget so much. But anyway, going out, taking off, and uh, keeping the guy in front of us uh, lit up. 
basically turning off all of our lights, our IFF, everything like that. And sometimes we hook up with a tanker, sometimes we don't, depending on how far into Iraq we go. Mm-hmm. Heading down on the low level itself, uh, Doug and I go down and we're in the basically the eastern uh, mountains of Iraq, uh, heading southbound and drop down the TFRs. We actually pop through a thin layer of clouds, drop down to about 400 feet, watching the hills, and it's all dark. I'm going back and forth between air-to-ground, air-to-air, making sure we're staying behind number two because we were number three in the package. And uh, we coming in, we're seeing, I'm seeing this light coming right at us, and as we start to climb, the light starts going down. I was like, what the heck? And as we start to come over the hill, the thing goes away. It basically was a, a, a truck on a road heading towards us on the road. So we're, I'm seeing that happen, and, and we're comfortable at 400 feet. The TS were twerping at us, and it's basically Sorry. twerping, like beep, 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 no, beep, but beep, the beep, what beep. was? The TFRs. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm monitoring the TFRs the mm-hmm. whole time and navigating, making sure that the, making sure that we're on course, on time. We've got to stay within 30 seconds of our, of our points, so we're staying in with the package at the right time so go every so often i go back to air to air scope and make sure that we're right behind right behind number two going into uh the ip uh pushing up the 540 knots uh getting our systems armed up um, i'm in the scope basically i'm looking for my offsets the gci site like glenn bob said was on a hill that and uh not we, just a hill it was on a very steep ridge okay. three thousand feet above the surrounding terrain oh, wow. yeah. See, I don't remember that part of it. I just no, I planned it. <laughs> you planned it. Your, your mind might have blocked it. Yeah, so found my offsets, which was basically a small town to the south and then the river bend. And these things stood out like crazy, and I was really comfortable with that. I'm watching the scope go off to the, on an angle. And, by the way, the TFRs, not TFRs, the radar and, and uh, the bars that the pilot looks at are tied together. So if I have a cursor and I'm moving the cursor, on the target or something, that bar is moving as well, and he's following those bars. So I'm watching the bars go off and go, Doug, check check the bars, because I'm looking at the scope. And he goes, get out of the scope and look. So I look outside, and there's like AAA everywhere, because one and two just dropped, and we're on our way. <laughs> we're on our way, and I was like, okay, you take care of your stuff. I'm getting back in <laughs> no, radar. I said, I said a quick prayer, and I said, oh, dear God, let us get these bombs off. I don't wow. care what happens after that. And so sure enough, about 10, 15 seconds later, I've seen the scope ride up, and it's like we climb up to 300 feet, arm the weapons. We're down around 200, one or 200 feet manually, I think, at that point, try to stay in below all this AAA. And, um, oh, by the way, there was a SA-6 launch during that time, too, and we had an ALQ-131 pod that was doing the smart jamming. So it was lighting up like a Christmas tree, doing all its work, something that no human could do. But it was amazing. It, it sensed what... I can't go into too much of it, but you can't sense, basically sense the frequency and jams appropriately. So, mm-hmm. But anyway, climbed up the appropriate altitude, got the bombs off, and they all came off good, no, no issues. And then um, we headed north, dropped it down 100 feet full afterburner, and got out of Dodge. And by that time, the bombs were going off, and I just slept outside, and it was like daytime. All the bombs going off just lit. I mean, these are just, these weren't, these weren't like market E2s or rock eye or things that are going to just explode big these are just bomblets but man it still looked like daytime outside so and anyway, we were heading north and uh, uh we're still still lights off everything I just you know. want to interject one thing yeah. ec-130 that was orbiting over turkey monitoring that ewgci site at the tot gone yeah, never heard from again they gave us a DFC for that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so anyway, we ended up climbing up, turned on our lights, and saw the whole package. We joined up and headed home. Wow. <laughs> How long was that whole flight? Like, what did you log in your logbook? Oh, gosh. I think it was uh, uh, roughly. 2.3, I, mean, I think. I mean, that's, yeah. So that's relatively short, right? Uh, the folks that came up for uh, Libya, 
what they, 14 11, or so? 14 11? hours. Yeah. yeah, it was about four, I think it was about 45 minutes going from Injilek to the part of the Turkish border mm-hmm. that it shared with Iraq, which is between Syria on one side and, and uh, Iran on the other. There's about a 40-mile gap in there that we went through all the time. So that's 45 minutes either way. Still a mess. And then depending on how far, s- we went further and further south as the war yeah. went on. But yeah. the initial was right around... 2.4. Everybody came home? Everybody came home. Any, uh, I'm sure you looked over the airplane real well. Any? Well, when we, we got back, <laughs> it's funny, we, we looked it over real well. There was a bullet hole in the tail. Oh. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the guys in the squadron were saying it was my own weapon with <laughs> a frag. That, that <laughs> bounce. I don't think so because no. we were up pretty high. I mean, it's like. But no, anyway, CBU 5871 wouldn't have had any they frag. Wouldn't, anyway. They wouldn't have had any frag. It was a bullet hole. They fixed it and it was ready to go the next day. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, the CBU, right? I mean, so what? It falls away and then opens up right away. So it's it's almost like having a high drag retarding fin on a bomb yeah. in so much as even though you're low altitude, it's going to fall behind. Well, and then bomblets are about this big. Okay. Yeah. And they have some, I can't remember what it is. They've got to spin or fall. They spin and they have a flammable uh, liner in it. So. And, and you said it was a GCI facility. So are you attacking the actual structure? Or like the antenna? Or? Well, it had it covered an area of okay. between the radar so and the there, trucks. Vehicles. You know that whole area yeah. it was perfect weapon and thin skinned, so yeah. it was absolutely the perfect weapon okay. for the job. And it just I actually broke out the target. Oh, okay, uh, I was using offsets up until mm-hmm. that point. When we got about fifteen seconds prior to release. I was able to break out the target. Oh, very nice. And it's like it stood out. So you were dash one on the second night, but not on this strike. That was the same. We were hitting different targets. Oh, okay. So they were hitting an EWGCI site, and for the life of me, I can't remember what the heck we were hitting on night one. Hmm. So it's, for my first mission, launching the airplane is not easy because there must be four really dense checklist pages to pre-flight the TFR. And uh, I've got to admit, I was a little bit like a well-hit three-wood in a tile shower. And... I'm going through this checklist, and every time I get to this one spot, and it gooned up. It was checking the aux flight reference system. So you, we had an error check between the inertial nav and the aux flight that if they went out of a spec, then it would do one thing. You couldn't TFR. You were done. And so about the fourth time I gooned, it didn't work. I called maintenance, and they, so other airplanes are taxiing now. And they say, well, we want you over in uh, last chance. And we're going to pull the amplifier for the aux flight reference system. Now, that's in front of the left intake, about this far in front. So shut down left engine. And it has 80 fasteners on it. And these guys, you know, bat- nowadays, you Speed know, with these battery-powered, yeah. you know, things, you could just boop, boop, boop. And, you know, they must still have RSI <laughs> injuries in their elbows for running that. There are 80 of these darn fasteners. Panel comes off. Amplifier comes out because it's the easiest thing to do. Put the amplifier back in, new amplifier in, run the checks again, blows it at the same spot, and time is just moving on. Amplifier out, gyro out, gyro in, amplifier in. It works! (laughs) (laughs) So uh, now they're spinning this panel back on, and we had a no later than takeoff time to meet because we had to get to the target... And this is what thing we kind of calculated, because we could go faster, but you'd burn fuel doing faster. So we still had to have enough fuel. So it was like, how late can we take off and catch up with the package and make our TOT and have enough gas when you get back? And we were coming up like about three minutes before, our, and the whole thundering herd's gone. Mm-hmm. We're lonely out there by ourselves. And 
they get the panel on, and I'm, I tell the weapons guys, just pull the pins right here. Don't wait out to enter it. We just need to pull the pins here. And I did, like, three things you never do. You never taxi single engine the F-111. <laughs> so I taxied single except engine. For, <laughs> except for night two of a war. <laughs> 35 knots was a limiting taxi speed. And we had about a quarter-mile drag from the hazes to the approach end of the runway. I did. I think I saw 75 knots. <laughs> Well, you were thinking about taking off soon. So you and just I was like, I, got, God, I have no idea. Because everybody's, everybody's standing top of the squadron building watching this. Yeah, oh, yeah. God, okay. I guess I'll get one. <laughs> and just made it. Just barely made it off in time. Wow. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. And we, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of things we didn't have sorted out. And one of the things was not hitting tankers. We had a, a tanker I'd just taken off. I was going through 7,000 feet, and a tanker went over my head so close I saw the director lights underneath it. <laughs> so we almost hit a tanker. <laughs> <laughs> hit in the bad sense of the word hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny aside, we have a chaff flare switch. And it was in front of the throttles. It was really quite a reach. The switch was only about that high. And so you'd push forward for chaff and flare and back for chaff. I don't know whichever one it was. I think it was a yeah, forward for chaff and flare. And one of the maintenance guys heard us complaining about it, and we had these soap sample tubes, oil sample tubes, and he found out that, well, he just cut off about that much, and it'd be an interference to fit over the switch, so it was a lot easier to reach. Well, you know how guys are. If one inch is, if that's good, then... <laughs> and pretty soon you get these... <laughs> you couldn't close a canopy over these things. They were stuck on the switch. And so the... What happened to me was the aux gyra was starting to tilt again, the standby oh, no. ADI. Standby ADI was starting yeah. to tilt. And I'm thinking, well, if this is, if we're back to this original problem again, then we're, there's no point in us going any right. further because the airplane won't TF. Well, the way to figure that out is you switch the platform from primary to aux, and that will slave the main ADI to the aux reference gyro. And if now if they're both tilted, then you know the aux flight reference system is going toes up again. So I reach forward, and that switch is right next to the chaff and flare switch with its really long tube. And the tube kind of went up my glove. I didn't even feel it. So much, oh, the no. lever was so long, I didn't even feel you the thing. You know it's coming. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and the, there was, I'd never dropped a flare Ever. Really? Wow. Just not, not something we ever did. And I had no idea what it would be like. Well, found out. Lights up First of night. all, it lights up the sky. <laughs> and in order, it has to be this, like, shiny thing to distract the missile from your engine. So that means it has to 
torch off right next to the airplane. Well, that's directly underneath the horizontal stabilizer, and that's a pretty significant thermal shock. The airplane went, I mean, it was a thump. The airplane thumped, sky lit up. I didn't realize I'd done anything. <laughs> and what we knew had happened was we one of the engines had let go. Because that was one of the things that happened to 111s, was a, the turbine wheel had come apart. And so there was a bold face for that, which was... Yeah, well, you get a firelight, so it, fire push button to press, agent discharge switch up. And there was actually a three-step bold face because the next step in the bold face was ejection handle squeeze and pull because it never Yikes. worked. The airplane turned into a Roman candle, and, you know, then eventually you'd be out of the airplane. So we're staring at the engines going, okay, what? <laughs> Waiting for the light to come on? Like a dog staring at a big wristwatch, all interest and no comprehension. <laughs> and Clyde, my right seater, he... A big panel of all these different numbers and dials. He happened to notice the flare counter went down by one. This is a little number about this big. I don't even know what caused him to look at it. Good on him. And he goes, and it was like three minutes of us waiting to figure out, oh, hey, we just punched off a flare. Oh, well, okay. At least we know the system works. <laughs> and then I checked, and it turned out that the aux light had oh just precessed a little bit, so I pulled the knob to set it up. And uh, we had another guy, you've probably heard this on the radio, we had this thing set up with the weasels where they, when they're shooting their, their harms, those things were giant rockets. And they had a mode where they, so they'd launch it on a radar, and if the radar blinked, went off, then this rocket would just go, and it had a lot of motor on it. It could go mm-hmm. up to 80,000 feet, mm-hmm. and that gave it a lot of hang time to hope the guy would turn it on again. And so they said, well, AWAC said, well, you know, we'll be calling picture clear if there's nothing around, and and." Uh, Wheels just said, well, we're going to call Magnum if we're launching one of these things because it'll get your attention. So one of our planes had turned to the south for a western target, and her picture clear and Magnum, and then separate that by about 15 seconds from Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. And what happened was, pilot who shall remain unnamed, <laughs> called him Voldemort, he... Uh, he sees the harm launch, and he thinks he's been jumped by a MiG, and he's been shot at. So he goes to full afterburner in a brake turn. Now we're, he's at 23,000 feet in a fully loaded F-111 dragging CBU-5871, and that thing was coming out of the sky like a grease safe. And so he does this brake turn, and then he went full afterburner. His thumb hits that plastic thing, just push it forward and off goes a flare. <laughs> he thinks he's been hit. Yeah. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Uh, and then punched off his stores. Oh. In a as tight a turn, I guess probably three three or four G's, so not a super but very in a one eleven, you never did that. You're gonna clean off your horizontal stabilizer. He's flying over Turkey at this time? Yeah, okay. he's still yeah. over Turkey. So you, your weapons are gonna typically what they're gonna do is they're gonna back up, the wing wash is gonna get them and they're have ripped fuel tanks in half. Thanks. Near as we can figure, it was pulling hard enough so that the weapons actually went between the wing and the horizontal stabilizer because it didn't actually hit any part of the airplane, wow. but it should have done. Mm-hmm. And now we're doing, they're doing this death spiral and the WIZO recovered the airplane and they were the first ones home. Did he get a new call sign out of it, I hope? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, anyway, we said we wouldn't say who it was. They named but... him Ivan Peak after him, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. They did. Hold on, but that was someone else's story. What, what okay, so, so we continued to the west, or the east, and we're yeah, yeah. on the far eastern side, 
turn south, do step down. Mm-hmm. But we're doing left, right, down low, 400 feet, going really fast. We're coming out of high terrain, so we really are cooking. And I see this light swing around and coming right at us. And I'm thinking, well, we're dead. That's a Sam coming off the rails, and, and we're... Just and there was about... Pulled right away? And, well, no. It's like I had about... It was about three-quarters of a second where mm-hmm. the, my brain's first thought was, we're dead, and about points, you know, oh, no, no, no. That's a truck on a road <laughs> above us. And he's come around a hairpin around the ridge line, uh-huh. and that's what I saw is his lights swinging around. Jeez. So we went... We were doing... I'm sure better part of 600 at this point. And we were about 80 feet to the right of him and about, I don't know, 75 or maybe 100 feet below him. And 111 going that fast doesn't, you can't hear it coming at you. So this guy's minding his own business <laughs> and suddenly he's as close as you get to a jet without actually getting hit by it. He's probably still cleaning his trousers. Well, and <laughs> all of a sudden out of nowhere, because it's not like you had lights like he did. No, no. Yeah, so all of a sudden nothing. he just hears this gargantuan sound, <laughs> and it's gone just as fast as it arrives. My goodness. And then... Um, is this in Iraq at this point? Yeah, this is in Iraq. Uh, well, so he was probably doing something nefarious at that hour yeah. anyway. I mean, come on, what's he doing driving on there a hillside? Yeah. And then, no, it was probably <laughs> five minutes or so after that. The we were getting a couple SA-2 marks on our whatever the EWGCI scope whatever the heck that thing was called and then the airplane goes into a fly up well we had practiced one of the things we did during the day was we, we had a, a what we call an e-scope it's a logarithmic scope that the, the TFR uses to create its picture for how it's going to command the airplane I won't even try bothering to describe it except it's very abstract it's kind of like looking at a slice of the earth and logarithmically so the distances compress the further away but we figured out that I don't want to, if I don't want to do a fly-up maneuver, but I still have the e-scope, can I hand-fly this thing? So you pal it off, and we could do it. I'd get down to 400 feet or so, and, and we wouldn't want to do it for very long. So the airplane's doing a fly-up, and I'm hand-flying it about 400 feet, SA-2 blinking over there, and I'm, like, totally locked up. And Clyde, my right-seater, John Frame, great guy, he looks at me and he goes, um, when do you switch radar channels? Uh, radar altimeter channels, because we had two radar altimeters, and that would hop between them so that it can compare the altitudes. So that way you couldn't get a single channel failure and cause the airplane to go into a ground under certain circumstances. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that thing. Brilliant. I'll do that thing. Yeah, that's what whistles are for. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Push the switch, and suddenly we're coming back. Boop, 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 boop. Just scooting along. Made it to the target. Got our weapons off on time on target as far as I know, and then as we turned northbound, our black line went right over what we did not know was one of Saddam's nuclear research things, whatever they, they were doing. And we're out in the middle of nowhere, and suddenly it's guns like you cannot... You know, I'm sure you've seen the video on TV, see CNN and all oh, that yeah, stuff. Sure, You're right. seeing the tracers, and that's about it. Well, your eyes have a much greater dynamic range than a camera does. So you're seeing the tracer, every bullet between the tracers. You're seeing S60 rounds. You can actually see the shells coming out of that because they're, they're on bigger guns. So you can see the quad 23s and the, the bigger guns, the S60s. And it was pretty impressive. And they were kind of had their 
they had depressed their guns as far as they could. Well, they didn't depress them all the way, so they wouldn't shoot each other. So you just pick the dark <laughs> spot, you know, uh, kind of 200 feet, go scooting through. And I remember, we were more than probably 150, 200 feet away from one of the Quad 23 sites. And I could see from the muzzle flashes, I could see all the guys that were working the gun. Future target. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, then we were on our way out. And uh, climb out, come back. And now there's another thing we hadn't really had time to rehearse. And I think it, we had more airplanes the second night to the first night. The EFs weren't really there on the first night. We didn't have quite as many assets. We had this whole wall of airplanes coming back. And everybody is doing their best check ride radio calls. I repeat the headings, repeat the altitudes. Uh, and it's like, oh no, just you know, just please just say your call sign. And the, and and so that we we jammed our own radios, yeah. Rapcon frequency, and I'm sure the Rapcon guys, they were just they just dove under their desks and, and hid. Because there's nothing they could do. It was just it was just massive airplanes. And fortunately the weather was good. I think if the weather hadn't been good, we'd have put some airplanes in the med. Yikes. It got bad, I think, a couple of days into the conflict. But hold on, I want to ask something you said. You said the black line went over a nuclear. Was that on your chart? Yeah, where well, we drew what we call You guys are just drawing a black well, line. We're just drawing Literally. a line over there. Yeah, now, okay. Our intel people never bothered to tell us this. <laughs> I kind of, yeah. I guess they didn't think it was important. Uh, well. So as yeah. we're coming back, I'm on, uh, on the south side of the field on downwind. And now at this point, I'm just looking for an empty spot in the conga line, which has gone out over the med. I just keep going until I find one and, and turn in and, and turn in. And so I saw one. It was about three mile, four miles off the end Uh-oh. of the runway. Someone who forgot to turn their lights back on? Oh, God. Blew my joke. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Somebody hand you a script? <laughs> <laughs> no, I could almost predict that one. I mean, cause, right? Because you're coming back. You're like, holy cow, I can't believe we just did that. Yeah. Well, I make a dive. Dive on to final, and okay. Tower says, hey, at 111, just rolling out on final, you got a KC-135 at uh, 12 o'clock for a mile and a half. And no, I don't. There's nothing out there. Until he clicked. And then <laughs> made that call again, and then suddenly I've got a windscreen Christmas. full of KC-135. Yeah. So, well, there's two things I could do. One was break out and go all the way out to the med, or I go, I think I, think I got enough gap here to... <laughs> About two miles out on final, I just went to afterburner, fully configured to a 360 on ILS final, rolled out. And, <laughs> and I'm not making any of that up. Yeah, yeah. I, I could give you references. No, no, I, I, I'll it was pretty, it face uh, value. pretty intense. Wow. Uh, Were your wheels already down? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, I it was so fully just, configured. Yeah, okay, flaps. I, I was that. already, you know, when I basically yeah. like you're coming around. <laughs> You know, uh, like if you're coming on the carrier, you'd be all configured at that point. Oh, and so. they have done that to me before. They'll spin you in the, it, while you're in the clouds and, you know, just to whatever, you know, make sure the deck is ready. And you, for, for me, every time I come out of that, you know, because you've been in a turn for a little while, then your ears are all oh. thrashed. It's, it sucks. But all right, my goodness. So how many missions did you all end up flying? I mean, right, the air war went on, what was it, a couple of weeks? Ground war was 100 hours. But So I flew every other day, 19 missions. Wow. So basically it was one day of planning. One day of flying. And when do you rest? In between, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah. But when you're not planning, you're resting. Yeah. And so it was, the uh, thing is, when you go you go back to, you know, after all the missions come back, you, you hang out and make sure everybody's back, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this is the mission planning night. Everybody lands safe. You go on back home. Even in, you go down, you lay down, and you get down about 4 or 5 o'clock, maybe get wrapped something to eat. 
6 a.m. sharp. F 16s are taken off at 30 second intervals. So <laughs> there was very little. You had to wait yeah. for that to go by before you actually got some shut eye. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's as a follow up to being in Turkey during the conflict. What I wanted to ask you, like for me, not that I was involved in anything like this, but when you go back to the ship, the ship is pretty austere, relatively, and you know what to expect. The folks going back to Saudi and some of the other bases, they were living in tents. They're getting also scudded and everything else. Was it kind of strange to go back to somewhat normalcy? You said you had a house. Yeah. And I'm thinking about now, unrelated to our conversation, but I've heard about this and read about this. The guys that live in Las Vegas drive up to Creech are executing strikes halfway around the world, in some cases killing people and going home before their kids get back from school. That's yeah. that's hard on their brains. Yeah. So did you guys experience uh, this connection? Me, me personally, I didn't. Uh, I considered, you know, basically when I was flying, I was one self. When I wasn't flying, I was another self. And basically the task at hand was to mission plan, target, get to the target, get the bombs off, and get home. And that was it. And then Compartmentalization. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. Again, I think the, the the guys in Creech, it's a little bit of remote what they're doing, but they're still the ones doing it. And then when they get home, it's a normal, you know, their family. The, the uh, kids really tough thing for them, we always went against known, valid military targets. Mm-hmm. And we rejected a couple if they were too close to say, sorry, we can't, we're not. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. Actually, yeah, we right? would sometimes reject runners a couple times, said, no, we're, just not, not, we're not hitting that target. There's lots out there, find yeah. something else for yeah. us. So we never had the concern that, yes, you wiped out a known killer of Americans, but you may have gotten his family, too. Mm -hmm. We never had any of that. So there was never any of this really profound moral qualms that I think any any decent person would have placed in that. And then plus that, you're going from a military environment, and you just, like, click the switch, and now you're back playing with the dog and the kids. Yeah, I've read about that. It's really tough. Yeah, for sure. 19 missions, were they similar to the one you explained as no, far as? No, actually, the first mission I flew, I t- explained. The second mission was a low level as well. That was actually an abort. It was a low level. We end, uh, It was a higher headquarter abort. We were, again, number three in the package and never got the bombs off. I don't think anybody in our package got the bomb off that day. We all came home with our bombs. And I'm not sure to this day why it was uh, called off. I don't know. I know we were, we were still late getting some. I couldn't tell what you What was the that. target? I didn't. I don't think I flew that night. I don't remember. Don't remember. Okay. Do you uh, think it could have had to do with the target? Because weather wasn't uh, right. A really concern if you're. Well, weather was never an issue for us. For you guys. Oh, the weather was actually always reasonably clear. Wasn't there a storm a couple days into Desert Storm? Duh. Maybe down south, but not okay. not upper. Yeah. Right. We lost an EF-111 in there with uh, Paul Eichenlob, uh was the EWO, and I'm not sure. Yeah, if that was the night that it actually happened, but he they ran EF one eleven into the ground. Oh. But uh, I don't, I, I can't put my dates all together. But I yeah. think that might might have had something to do with it. I do know that AWACS after this first couple of days was a, basically a non factor. Basically, they they made some mistakes and uh, they were calling bogeys when they weren't. They were basically our aircraft. So at that time, uh, it was decided the F fifteens would do the targeting and sorting of all aircraft in the theater. So. Did you ever do anything with the Navy, or is it all just even within your own wing there? It sounds fairly... We had uh, some SEALs brief with us uh, a couple of missions, I thought, doing uh-huh. some lasing for us when we brought the amps. I may have been... I did some other things besides fly during the mm. yeah. storm, so I may not have been around when that happened. Okay. Mm, okay. All right. Did you ever go uh, day raids? 
You said earlier, yeah. I think you ended up elevating, though, right? Yeah. So basically, the, after the second mission, we came back with our weapons. Uh, it was decided to go medium altitude, basically between fifteen to twenty-five thousand feet, and big targets. And basically, it was AAA would never reach us. So it was it was like a peacetime mission. We basically go out there, fly our low level at twenty thousand feet, and basically drop our bombs and turn around and come home. So it was a uh, we didn't have to worry about the any SAMs going off because we, we had the wild weasels, we had mm-hmm. the EF-111s, and we had, we had the F-15s in case they dared to launch an airplane. So it was just like... <laughs> they were all wishing just, they would. <laughs> it was yeah. just a peacetime mission for us yeah. so at that, for the next 15 missions, 16 missions. So For sure. I want to ask you about the EF-111. Is that a totally different aircraft, or could the two of you have jumped in and gone and flown that I have to think the mission is obviously different, but what about actual piloting and... and the EF-111 is essentially identical to that. But like with the F-111, where the mission really is the right seat, he's the guy who gives us reason for being. And the same thing with EF-111. EWO in the right seat, he was... Specialized. So he re- okay. Really, it is very technical, yeah. and operating that system to, to jam what you needed, when you needed to jam it. When you went to NAV school... Everybody graduated NAV school. One went on to fighters. One went on to tankers or or bombing, and the third one would go. The third sector would go off to be an EWO. So they have a totally different classification and certification as okay. an EWO. They mm-hmm. go with the whole special class just for that after NAV school. All right, I'd love to have a show on that. We just have to find the right folks. Probably you two could help. But is theirs all Trons, or is, was there any kinetic? No, nope. they drop all Trons. Okay, I thought so. And it had a different paint job, maybe, or it was gray, yeah. and it had a big pot up in the okay. vertical stabilizer yeah. that that is very characteristic. Yeah. Okay. Now, when you went to the higher altitude, you probably still weren't dropping CBUs, right? Or no, medium. you're calling it medium, but we went to fourteen. Fourteen. We carried one Mark eighty two each on the inboard pylons. And then we had racks where we carried eight. Mark 82s? I've, yeah, I, I was looking at my logbook. I had 8, 12, and 14 Mark 82s on different yeah. missions, depending wow. on what the target was. Right. We actually dropped cam on one, which is a combined effects munition, hmm. which you could probably go more into detail on that, but it's uh, it's pretty radical. Actually, we, I can't. Well, thank, thank, thank you for setting me up on that. <laughs> so it was payback for me, really, uh, story turning behind the uh, KC. How did your squadron make out as far as uh, you said you lost an EF-111? Did your squadron keep everybody, I yep. have to ask? Yeah, everybody came back. Uh, the only bullet hole we took was the one these guys got. Night one, really? Yeah, or night two, one. But night one for y'all. And then w- were they all about two and a half hours, or did you end up having to go Some of those, We went down to the north side of Baghdad. There was a big kind of, I think, their answer to Edwards, uh, Altaji Airfield, giant, giant military facility. Was it by a lake? Yeah, there was a pretty there was a pretty big lake that was maybe I want to I'm now I'm going way yeah, back on fuzzy memory, but 25 miles northwest. Okay. I feel like, yeah. and we just we just called it waffle bombing. We were just going to keep <laughs> dropping these things from 20 some odd thousand feet until Altaji just looked like a big old waffle. This was if they wanted something hit, like a specific building, I'd put an F-117 on it. Okay, but we just came in and just. This was an incredible mission. This was our last mission of of the war. We didn't know it at the time, but we went in. And was it 16 airplanes in the package, or is it 12 airplanes in the package? I can't remember. But every airplane on the same target with a different dimpy, which is a different target on the on the target, carrying four Mark 84 2,000 pounders. Wow. We had a requirement to be on our each point, our IP 
and over-target within 10 seconds instead of 30 seconds. The reason for that was we're lights off, we're all coming in from different angles over the target, and we're separated. These guys that planned this were just geniuses, but (laughs) (laughs) we ended up, we, we all dropped our bombs on this target and then headed home, and we had all these rules in case any of these things happen, you'd get out of the package and get out of the way of everybody because mm-hmm. we were so close in altitude and airspace with all, with everybody. It had to be very precise. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so we all headed back after that, and um, we got back to the debrief, and we're, we're standing there normally in the debrief. It's uh, it's just our squadron commander and the package commander. We're talking and going over how things went. Well, we had General Downer in the room, and uh, he basically opened up a printout uh, basically from, from George Bush saying cessation of hostilities place when just went erupted you know <laughs> yeah. so it was like based on our time over target so wow yeah fantastic hold on let's go back to the beginning because we talked about the different kind of bombing and how hard it was i guess in the e compared to the f what were you flying at this time were the e's e's yeah. okay did the f was that a different unit or did it come to you at some lake point? and aria flake and heath okay was f 111 f's okay so and they're like you said they're using what FLIR or other pods they to, uh they had but just an incredible, that was the, probably the best ground attack airplane non-stealth ever. But they had what was called PAVE-TAC, which was a targeting and laser pod. And they see IR, so like having goggles. Mm-hmm. And it would be slaved to the INS and the attack radar so that you can get the thing pointed in the right direction. Then you pick the target out on that you want to hit on the ground, let's say a hardened aircraft shelter. And then they had a laser that would hit what you were designating. Mm -hmm. And their tactic, when they're operating low levels, and this is, again, something that nobody else could do, is they come in about 600 or so knots, and they pull up to 45, 4G pull to 45 degrees nose high, and let the bomb go. Now, as long as they're kind of in a basket, weapon has enough energy to get there. And it's and, not a dumb bomb. And it's, oh, no, it's, it's, it's laser guided. Right, exactly. And so as long as you don't give it too much maneuvering to do, it, you know, it's energy maneuvering equation is working out in the positive, <laughs> uh-huh. then they'll, they'll fling this thing up from about six miles out. Wow. So the, the bomb goes, whew, and it guides on the laser target. And because the pod is directly on the center line of the airplane, on the bottom, this is where an advantage it has over the F-15 or F-16 is that there was no pendulum effect or mm-hmm. podium effect that if you got it on the wrong side, if you turned out, you could blank, the fuselage would blank the laser. The 111 is right underneath the center of the airplane. Weapon release, 120, this is all at night, 120 degrees of bank, and you do a pull down, and you do about 120 degrees of turn, so you kind of doing a wing over and roll out. Meanwhile, the Wizzo, while the pilot's doing this, he's keeping the laser on the target. Yeah. And so they were doing, with one bomb, what we likely wouldn't have been able to do. We probably, we, we would have PK with how we had to spread out the weapons against something like a hardened aircraft shelter, maybe 0.2. And they were like 1.0000. <laughs> one bomb, yeah. one shelter, gone. And then they'd put it back on TFR and scoot on out. So they never had to overfly the target. And they had super accurate delivery. The only weakness to that is you've got to have a clear sky between you. Right. So better than six miles of viz. And then they did that for about the same week we did. And then everybody agreed we're better off at high altitude. And then they had the next stroke of genius, which was, oh, wait a minute. Look what we can see at night with our IR. Yeah. We can see tanks. 
Bye. <laughs> would they? And so maybe this changed when they went to the higher altitude. Would they carry one bomb on a mission, or no? They would carry four. I think. They, so on that low altitude mission, would they pickle all four or just one? I don't know. Or I do know they multiple I, runs. I don't That's think. I don't think anybody did multiple okay. targets. I don't think they released. Four. I really don't know because so I and again because I wasn't down there. Yeah. Didn't really know any of the guys. All I remember seeing is like a has and looked like one bomb hit it. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if you let four of them go all at once, it... Well, it depends on the target. That could yeah. be overkill. But once they went to the higher altitude and started plinking tanks, there's one. Okay, yeah, they, one they would go, they put them in a box and then just go after targets of opportunity. Whatever's in just, here. just back and forth. They see something. And, yeah. and then they, when they go Winchester, they go home. Uh, well, that, and that's almost a whole separate discussion because that, of course, means we have to have done some pre-coordination to know that we don't have any friendlies in this yeah. area. And, or if there is, maybe there's a forward air controller or something along those lines. So... Very interesting. So did you also end up with 19 missions? No, I, I, our mission planning process was mm-hmm. really not working very well. So I got pulled off the flying schedule. I flew three low levels in the first week, and I was the so fire weapon school grad, high-time guy in the wing. So I got pulled off and said, you're not flying again until our mission planning processes are down so that they work. Like fixed, yeah, fixed. Yeah, so not, I not down like broken. <laughs> yeah, no. So, so they were we were just they were chaotic. We had yeah. errors and okay, we just didn't really have a good process for, and it was pretty complicated because we had to we get an air tasking order. Saddam should have seen this before he started the war. Our ATO is the size of a medium city phone book. Evidently, they had to fly it out to the carriers every day. Yeah, it was huge, yeah. and so if he's seen that, he might go mm, maybe. <laughs> uh, so you go flip through, Let's you find your airplane. Too much credit, but anyway. Airplane, and then you target they wanted for us. Then you'd look, take a look where the target was, maybe reject it, maybe keep, you know, probably keep it. And then I had to decide, or whoever was running the mission planning, had to decide what weapons to use and what fuses to use. Mm-hmm. We had to coordinate with the B-52s at Fairford, and then we had to talk to all the different mission types. Okay, this is where we're going. This is where the B-52s are going. This is where your cap's going to be. You know, just all those details, kind of like red flag. Yeah. And uh, so that would start about uh, four or five in the afternoon. For that night's for the strike. mission that'd wow. be taken off at about two in the morning. Okay. And so I had about seven hours to get the ballistics done. Right. Pass the weapons order to the weapons guys so they could load them. Had to draw maps, had to do flight plans, had to wow. do ballistics. <laughs> and the goal was that when the air crew showed up, they had a package ready. And then I had to stick around to clean up after the mission goes. And I, Anyway, it took about 10 days. By the time... To get the processes. That, that we had the processes down yeah. that I could mm-hmm. hand it off. And, and then yeah. we had, at that point, we'd have one guy who kind of... Anyway, we came off the mission planning and yeah. things started working properly. And then that, that was working 20 hour days. Wow. Because after they came back, then I had yeah. to figure out what went wrong, what to do right the next day. I'd go home. I'd probably be back at our bat, which is a lot like the Navy. We had six guys in a Quonset hut built for two. That's as close as I got to. Anyway. <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> um, so I just got pneumonia about the oh, no. eighth day of that. So they finally let me go from the mission planning thing, and then the stupid flight surgeon wouldn't let me fly no matter how much I jumped up and down. And uh, then I got sent off with uh, AWACS, F-15, F-16, 
and maybe one other guy, we all got in a King Air, and we spent five, six days flying to different Turkish Air Force bases and giving them briefings on our operations. Uh-huh. And then I got back from that, and the flight surgeon finally got tired of hearing my whining <laughs> and uh, let me fly again, and I flew 12 total okay. missions. But I missed a whole chunk there. They right, flew us. They tried to fly us every other day. Yeah. They never flew us two days in a row. So was Clyde grounded as well then? Yeah. He was, oh, wow. he, he was wow. stuck with me getting this thing all straightened yeah. out. I think I know the answer to this. I'll ask anyway because most of the ground stuff was in the south. Did you get involved with helping once the ground war kicked off? Okay. No, yeah. Al-Taji was the most south target we had. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, I told the folks that support the show financially that you guys were coming and they wanted to ask some questions. So if you don't mind, I'm going to do that. Normally, I screen them first. In keeping with today's overall theme of Jello was not prepared, I just left them on my phone for email. And so I haven't screened these yet, so you have to bear with me. But Joe Kunzler wants to know, tell us about your biggest raid in Desert Storm. We talked about night two. So I'll take Joe's question and tweak it a little bit. Was it ever that they would just send you in to do it or were you always part of a larger or bigger raid? Yeah, we were always part of a package. Basically, we actually were Desert Storm, but there was actually another, what was it, uh, not Provide Comfort, what was the name of that? Deny Flight, Northern Watch. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It'll come to me, but we always deployed in packages, never single ship. And did that, from what you've described today, you almost could have acted more like a F-117, because we did have an episode on that, and they were pretty much... Lone Rangers, sounds like. But for what you were doing, was it important, I guess, to have the Eagles there to know your, your air picture was clean and all that? Or I think we probably could have gone alone yeah. without any support whatsoever because we were so low and so fast. Mm-hmm. And the, they didn't have any kind of integrated air defense system, even without the weasels around. They just couldn't direct. They didn't have search radars that could pick us up to direct the target tracker radars, which... You know, they're like, like looking at the world through a soda straw. If you mm-hmm. don't know where to look, you can't find anything. Our speeds were so high that they really didn't have – we were out of the envelope for everything except an SA-6. And we could pretty much jam the SA-6. Yeah. And they had most of their stuff down south. Okay. But we had other things going on. We had B-52s. Yeah. Well, now, you know, they were doing a lot of work. And I, th- I think we had eight or ten of them a night. It was a lot. But as soon as, you know, put B-52s in the mix – and now you got to have all that other stuff. Well, but I guess that's the point. Maybe yeah. they need it, but you didn't. But yeah. it might have just been easier to give you a window of time. And then maybe at the end of that time, maybe some other force is striking. I mean, or, I don't know. Maybe there were times when nobody was going in. But in other words, you had a vol, as we'd call yeah. it. Yeah. How many aircraft do you remember total would be in a package? I think about 60. Wow. Yeah. But that's counting tankers. So we'd have 12, 12 111s. Probably, so we had F-16s that were with the weasels, so we might have eight F-16s, four F-4Gs, three or four tankers, AWACS, AC, EC-130s, and then probably four EF-111s. Okay. I'm not any good at public math. Buff, we already talked about <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then, yeah. And then the buff's going to, yeah. so, but just taking off that engine. Okay. I think it was around 60. I'm not going to do the public yeah, math to verify that. All right. Tom, who doesn't want me to use his uh, last name, says, noting the higher maintenance requirements of the pig, how did you find the availability during Desert Storm? We already talked about you had to jump through hoops to get out on night two. Yeah, I had had that one maintenance issue. I think we were probably better than 90%. We had 16 airplanes out there 
with the goal of launching 12 every night. I think there were a couple nights we were down to 10, and we had almost no maintenance turnbacks. Wow. But that was, again, due to maintenance operations, not to combat loss or anything like that. Yeah. The operation was lavishly supplied with parts and maintenance personnel. Our maintenance did a great job. I mean, I never had an aircraft swap or any kind of, in my existence, but we were either, you know, code one, code two, or code three, depending on how bad the the issue was when we came home. I was normally code one. We'd have a couple code twos, and the next day it was always ready to go. So. Is code one good to go? Code two, fix something? Code no three, down? Yeah. Okay, yeah. gotcha. We, yeah, we had something yeah. similar in my squadrons. Just on that note, how old were the aircraft then? Do you remember? Were they relatively new or relatively old? Old. Okay. 1968. 67, 68, So I this think. is 20-ish years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jim <clears throat> Gundog says, F-111 crews were the LGB kings of the day. What other platforms assisted you so you could be so effective? Now, you didn't end up tanking on night two, you said, at all? Or did you on the way out? No, we didn't, we didn't no, start no. tanking until okay. after we went further south to, right. to towards Baghdad. Okay. And we didn't really need to. Unlike the lawn darts that really, they had to get F-16? a tank. Yeah, was, uh, yeah right, sorry. <laughs> um, they, because it was a 45-minute drag both ways. Okay. And to go anywhere south at all, they had to, yeah. they had to tank. But uh, we started tanking when we were going down to Baghdad. And it's kind of, I don't know how the Navy did it. But the Air Force, when you know you did tanking, you got a you know an anchor point, mm. and you had to turn on. You had all these radio calls, and it was a pretty choreographed thing. Yeah, that's not how it went. We'd come up, and the and the tankers had three or four orbits, about a hundred miles north of the border, and we were just right seaters looking for tankers or things that could be tankers, and and you're looking at tankers that. They actually had just had the formation lights on. So he would steer us to a tanker. We'd see the formation lights on the tanker. Look around. Oh, hey, okay, there's a plane. We'll just kind of pull up behind him, or there's nobody. Drive up to the boom, get your gas, yeah. disconnect, disappear, never say a word. Right. <laughs> if you're that far north, I mean, you're pretty well safe, I would think, up there, right? Couldn't they have yeah. had all their lights on? or You never know. You know, I, actually, I got a... I, my mind's telling me it was just formation lights, but my brain's telling me what you just said, okay. that they had lights on. Yeah. I think the first couple of nights they didn't, hence my right. experience with yeah. the tanker. But after about week one where we knew that their Air Force was completely non-functional, at that point they did yeah. have their lights on, yeah. right? Well, by the time I got there in 1997 for OSW, tankers were over Iraq. We came in from Persian Gulf and we owned the South, so... How was the F-111, Anthony Lombardo wants to know, mission different from the start of the air campaign to the end? We talked about the altitude, but was the role of, whether it was strategic or tactical targets, more or less the same throughout? The role did change. We started out, our mission for any conflict was primarily start out as suppression of enemy air defenses so that more vulnerable airplanes could operate. And so that's how we started was... The F-16s mostly operated during the day at that point, so they were more vulnerable than us, so we needed to knock down the EWGCI site. So the first couple, three nights at least, maybe all of the low-level nights, were command and control and yeah. EWGCI targets. Bruce Thomas, who's uh, one of your Air Force compadres, Beaker, he goes by, he wants to know, I believe F-111s trained to be, quote, all alone, low and very fast, into targets. What was the reality in the storm? 
was it Libya Part 2? I think we've talked about you were alone but part of a package, right? Yes. And that is effectively what you did. But I don't know what he means here by was it Libya Part 2? Okay. No, it was not. Okay, what does he mean? Or what's he implying there? I'm not just talking about the distance well, the, you had to the, go. The, but. I'm not. The goal of Libya was deterrence. We wanted to reach out and touch Gaddafi. Was either. it sort of a spanking to you, though, a little bit? Well, well ideally, we were going to vaporize him. <laughs> okay, so we he wasn't right in the exact spot to get vaporized, but we very nearly did so. And so the goal of Libya was, don't make us come back here and do it again. Right? You know, like your kids fighting in the back seat. That's don't right. Make, <laughs> don't make me pull this car over. <laughs> and it worked. Okay. So, but the uh, uh, Desert Storm was entirely different. That was a, uh, a war to obtain the political goal of uh, Saddam removing his forces from yeah. Kuwait. And so that was not at all similar. So you're just going to be doing this. Keep doing what you're doing until we yeah. persevere. John Clark wants to know, what was the call and response like, i.e. notification of the impending deployment, the relocations, and the ramp up to the first mission? Just to prove I was listening, I remember you saying you were already in Turkey for the weapons debt. Then you went home, someone else went, but then they sent you again. That's where you stayed. And I guess maybe the one thing I would add to John's question here is, right, the rest of the world, for those of us who are in the business, we, we don't necessarily bristle, but it's like, yeah, okay, if there's going to be something, I want to see how I'll do. When you got home, I don't know if either of you were in you know, families or otherwise, or maybe those who were, but what was that like for everybody else back home? So I was dating my future wife at the time. She was on base. We met on base. And we just <laughs> wow. got, we were walking. This is after the first night of the war. Okay. And this is the next night. We were coming back from movie theater. Vinny was, met us on the street. He's one of our whistles. And he goes, hey, Ram, I heard you took around last night. <laughs> my wife, future wife, looked at me and she didn't even know that we were flying missions because they're on base. Yeah. She got deployed back to the States. She, she's a teacher. She got deployed with the, with the dependents back in the States after okay. the war officially kicked off for us. And so she was like, she didn't know. And I didn't, I didn't tell her because we weren't supposed to tell her right. that we're actually flying these missions. So. She gave you the eyebrow. Like, yeah, she's like, what? You got shot at? <laughs> well, we were um, on base and we didn't know if we were actually going to be taking part because the Turkish government hadn't given approval. And it was like three days before the balloon went up, and suddenly there are KC-10s, DC-10 civilian freighters just lining up on final, and they were getting all the non-combatants out. Uh-huh. And so they started evacuating the base three days prior, and that's when we knew we were going to go. Mm-hmm. I do remember that uh, after my first mission, I was pretty shook up. I mean, I I was scared freaking witless. I'm not I'm not ashamed to admit it. It was scarier for the pilots and the whizzos, because we were in the radar. You, yeah, your head's down. <laughs> down. And, so, and something weird happened between that end of that first mission, and I can't explain it except maybe it's a guy thing perhaps, but terrified after the first mission. The third mission, I was like, let's crank this excitement up some more. And it got to be not sure I liked Acknowledging that, that it'd be mm-hmm. kind, kind of a thrill thing, and yeah. the fear just completely went away. And it was, we're still getting shot at a lot. But I remember one one of the high altitude missions, I go, I, you know, now we're getting pretty stupid. I turned off target a little bit steeper than normal. I said, hey, Clyde, look out there. And I went to the afterburner, and guns started shooting at us. <laughs> 
Uh, you started to think you were invincible. Huh? Uh, well, we were high enough that so we probably yeah. were, but that was, that was still stupid. Yeah. Well, we, yeah. I, I can go on record. And then I think I got after got back. I think it was uh, probably a good four or five years before I could watch a Fourth of July fireworks. Really? Without having a bit of a you know adrenal reaction yeah, yeah. there. Not you know nothing. I can't put it in the category of PTSD because people have that really bad. Not even going there with that, but still, but I, something was, would happen. It would cause a reaction. It would based cause on a yeah combat little, that you'd been yeah. in. Yeah, well, I mean, you could make a case for that. On that note, was it? A, I mean, you said everyone cheered when you heard the President Bush cessation of hostilities, but maybe like a day later, was it sort of a letdown? I mean, as far as again, I don't want to say it's fun, but this is what I'm trained to do, and I'm doing it effectively and making a difference. And when that's over. I don't know, maybe there's a bit of a, like when you all, when, well, let me ask you this. When did you get back to England? Uh, March 9th. So 28th of February was our last mission. March 9th, we all flew back. And when I, you got home, was it great or was it, it was, like? It was incredible. I mean, yeah. we had, we brought back the whole squadron to initial. We all parked and it was the, the all the families were out there on the flight line. The, t- the media was out there and it was just a, incredible. I got an interesting story. There's a, I was just telling Gwen Bob on the way here. Aircraft 039, I don't know if you ever had a, a situation where important parts of your life were one tail number. Well, this airplane, 039, was not even our squadron. It was a 77th airplane. I was going through my logbook, and I didn't realize that 039 had several things happen in, in my life. The first was I earned my call sign in that airplane. I won't go into that story right now, but that's how I earned the call sign rim, and my and Doug became sled. Oh, come on, tell the story. <laughs> okay. No, no, we'll end with it. Okay. So, yeah, so uh, basically, it was the first aircraft I flew in the first mission of the war, the last mission of the war, and the airplane I ferried home. Oh, wow. And I actually did a dedication when they took that airplane and put it on a stand in Shaw Air Force Base. So I gave a dedication to oh, it there. So good. that airplane is very special to me. So it was just a sense of satisfaction when you were home. Yeah. We, we, we answered the call. We did our job. Now on to the next thing. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, back to training and peacetime yeah. missions. Yeah. Okay. Next question. You're going to have to uh, work with me on this one. It's from Nick Forster. Did your software help turn bullseye information into BRA, B-R-A-A, to assist in your defensive reactions? If not, how did you derive this info? As a fellow swing-wing mud mover, parenthesis tornado, deriving this info was always challenging. I understand that an F-111 sustained CFIT controlled flight into terrain at night while threat reacting to an Iraqi MiG or Mirage early in the war. So uh, the F-111's retired, so I don't know how much you do or don't want to disclose what systems it had. But again, the first question was, or the question, did your software help turn bullseye information into bra to assist in your defensive reactions? What was that word you used right. after with the word your? Was it software? <laughs> <laughs> Software? He's thinking, he's thinking, uh, he's thinking F-15. We well, had no software. <laughs> yeah, we did establish that earlier. I could have answered this one, darn it. Uh, we were the software. Yeah. <laughs> so you had a system, though, that told you something, and it was up to your brains there to we had, make sense out of we it. We had yeah. a RAW, uh, which was uh, basically an indicator told us where the threat was, was coming from, electronic threat. We had the ALQ-131, so that's probably the most electronics we had in the airplane. And I mentioned earlier in our conversation the 131 pod actually was a uh, it was a smart weapon, so it basically could jam whatever signal from whatever direction, and uh, we didn't have to think about it. And the RAW basically gave us indications of that frequency coming in from whatever quadrant or direction that we actually had that coming in from. And we didn't react to it, but we actually knew it was more of like an FYI, so we knew we had an idea of yeah. where it was coming from. 
I, I get the feeling that the business of being a military aviator or fighter pilot, whatever you want to call it, is changing in so much as you had to use systems to build your own situational awareness back in the day. And these days, I feel like it's provided to you, and you have to just decide what to do with it, sometimes on your visor, sometimes on the uh, aircraft itself. And so I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I think based on the progression of technology, it's just how it was, right? He told you something, you had to make sense of it, do it, and, you know. No, this is, I know people don't believe this is possibly true, but there was no Internet then. (laughs) Seriously, there was no Internet. Yeah. We had no software. Yeah. We didn't even really use uh, the our, what we used. I had a handheld calculator that I programmed to do ballistics, an HP engineering calculator. Wow. That was the limit of our automation until that wonderful emission support system mini computer showed up. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Yeah. And, and so it really, that's why I said that this is like telling your audience about the Peloponnesian Wars because <laughs> the operation that we performed if you compare it to the F-111F completely different the F-111F was a step into the future and we were the past that was rapidly receding how much longer did you fly the F-111 after Desert Storm? well for me personally we brought back March 9th Mm -hmm. in April I had my Finney flight and I went on to to, uh, be an instructor in NAV school okay you talked about that earlier how many hours then did you end up with in the F-111? oh about 600 650 something like that How about you? I flew the airplane for another six months, just about 3,000 hours in it, and then went to Air Command and Golf College down in Montgomery, Georgia, and followed that up with a three-year tour at the Pentagon, about which we shall yeah. say no more. <laughs> Hold on, though, because you said you were a weapons school graduate, and I'm going to display my ignorance. At one point, it was a fighter weapons school, mm-hmm. and it just became the weapons school. Yeah. What was it by then, and did you went through in the F-111? I went through in the F-111. We actually flew all our missions out of Mountain Home, except for the final week. Okay. Uh, it was called fighter weapons school because at the beginning, it was only fighters, and it right. was really built to fix shortcomings we found in Vietnam against our adversaries. So it would started out as an air-to-air thing, mm-hmm. and gradually you know, included air-ground stuff. And then by the time, and I'm pretty, pretty cynical, well, wait a minute, we got B-1s out here. They need that expertise. Right. We got AWACS that we have to work with. And and so that's why it became the weapons school, right. well, because there was just so much more stuff than, than just fighters going out there. I believe the intelligence officers can get yeah. a weapons mm-hmm. school patch yeah. now. And I guess it just means being humble, credible, approachable, but also the expert in whatever field it is you are. Humble? You're supposed to be. <laughs> Apparently that was after you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really did. It, was, uh, yeah. uh, it made a huge difference. We had perhaps one of the reasons our squadron got picked to go to Desert Storm was just luck of the draw. We had four quick grads. And the other squadrons only had one each. And that really did give us a level of technical expertise in weaponeering and mission packages mm-hmm. and stuff like that, that we could, that having four guys there that, that could, that were, had a lot more training that really made a difference. Well, you had that experience, but also did each of you maybe have performed a, a red flag or something equivalent prior to Desert Storm? I had, I had three red flags in the F-4, but not in the F-11. Okay. I had two in the F-111. Right, because the whole idea is not that the shooting in Desert Storm turned out to be like in Vietnam, but in Vietnam, as I understood it, 
folks were getting shot down on the first 10 missions because they just hadn't mm. had those experiences. So did you find for you, night two or whatever, that those experiences, whether a weapon school or a red flag, had really helped you prepare for that night? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, because absolutely. you had the whole team that you'd worked with before and the coordination. They had the fog of war, which is hard to practice, but you kind of do because something always changes. Mm-hmm. Right? So. And in, in dealing with a package with different aircraft type, like we did in, in Desert Storm, where we had, a, we had a composite package of, like Wimbob was saying, you know, different aircraft types doing different things in, the, in part of your mission and how it all integrated together, that was really reflected in Red Flag real well. I, I meant to ask you how many hours in the uh, F-111. Almost 3,000. Oh, wow. Darn it. Yeah, okay. makes no difference. Awesome, guys. Well, gosh, this is a fun discussion. I guess we need to talk about call signs because we're getting close to that. But uh, before we do, just uh, so the F-11 has been gone a while, uh, as I understand it. Were the Aussies, I think, the last to fly it? Yeah, the F-111s, yeah. the F-111F retired in 97, the EF-111 in 2003, I think. And then the Aussies flew theirs through 2011. Okay. But if I surprised you and said there was one out here on the ramp here at the Glesby Field, we're, uh, we're at an FBO, Circle Air Group Studios here. What do you think? Go jump in it and go? <laughs> sure, I would. I can't remember how to start the motors. <laughs> you remember enough to. of it? I'd love to. Yeah, I can do it. Could yeah, you? Yeah. yeah. Give yeah. me a checklist. So. Yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> Aviators live and die by checklists. Awesome. All right. Well, so what's the future? I mean, future for the F-111 is it's going to hopefully uh, get refreshed once in a while, but it's going to be on display at different museums, it sounds like, and in our hearts and on video of doing the old dump and burn. We didn't even talk about that. I guess we have to. I'm sure you did that a handful of times. Really not that big a deal, Not right? as far as you know. Okay. Oh, was it <laughs> no, not a lot? not legal. Well, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I think I said this on the uh, episode 111, but I was at the um, Meridian Air Show. I was a student in Meridian at the time, and an F-111 took off at the end of Sunday, and all of a sudden, in my mind, it was on fire. I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch this ejection. Like, wait, what the heck? What just happened? I had no idea about the dump and burn at all. But all of a sudden, as this thing takes off and goes about, look like 45 degrees nose up, I just see this enormous fiery plume behind it. And I thought I was about to witness a mishap. But, yeah. Was it not allowed because they thought Well, I don't know that it was. I'm not sure I can remember a rule, strictly speaking, saying. But in my first tour on as a lieutenant in England, we had an exercise of the Norwegian Air Force. And there for a few days and then we're heading out and they intercepted us and I think they're flying F-5s anyway so we're we're cruising out of medium altitude to cross over the North Sea back to England and this pair of F-5s join on us and I'm leading and I go I have an idea <laughs> flicked the dump switch went to afterburner and torch and man those F-5s they move <laughs> they thought the same thing you did yeah, yeah. and my wingman said, lead, you're on fire. <laughs> Watch this. No, I'm not. And so we're like, you know, I think there's eight of us out there at this exercise, and the uh, ops officer was on the same frequency further down the road, and the only thing I could say was, no, I'm not. <laughs> and explain then later. Go, okay, I wonder how long <laughs> this rug dance is going to last. Yeah. And yeah, I got called into the rug on oh, that sure. one. But it was. But you weren't the one who like discovered you could do it. I'm guessing. Oh no, I, no, it's no. you what have the, the, the because of the way the airplane's designed. There's right. only one place, and you would have to dump fuel based on certain situations yeah. to get down to a landing weight, sure. or only one place to put that. That's between the two engines. And there's only one thing that's going to happen if you go. To, and how long do you think till guys go? Yeah. <laughs> 
What well, I have to do? think one of the test pilots figured it out. Oh, yeah, they like, knew, but it was yeah, like, yeah. I don't uh, think anybody resisted the temptation. Oh, yeah. No, they're going to find out. All right, so F-111 retired and on display, but uh, what I'm trying to lead up to is what's the future all for you? Are you are you still involved in aviation or working, or you just enjoyed retired life, or what's going on these days? Well, I, um, I got forcibly removed from the flight deck. We talked about it, yeah. Uh, Uh, I've been flying 767s or FedEx, and I really thought they were going to have to drag me off the flight deck. I was just going to be a sobbing wreck, (laughs) covering myself in shame. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what, I couldn't tell you, but I shut off the last engine, walked off the flight deck, and I scarcely, it's like my brain said, that book is closed. You can put this on the shelf and pull it out when you want to revisit some memories. But that's done. And I scarcely, I really haven't thought about it yeah. since. Well, it wasn't a surprise either. No, right? it wasn't you a surprise. You knew leading up to it, yeah. hey, it's coming. I think I'll be this way. But when the time came, you were handled I'm it. just like well and cool, truly retired now. Cool professional. That's great. And living somewhere up north, you had yeah, to drive Boise, all the way down? Boise, Idaho. Living, okay. in the, living in the hills just a few miles outside of town there. And love Idaho. It's a great place. I'm told, so I live here in California. I'm told if I move there, I need to change my license plate before I get there. Is that is that true? Well, <laughs> you probably won't get keyed. <laughs> probably won't. Gas is about a buck fifty a gallon cheaper in Idaho yeah, than Yeah, sorry about here. that. I'll have to give you a stipend for the trip down. How about you, Rim? What, uh, what are you doing these days? Well, um, still working. Well, like I said, I'm working at American Airlines doing the nav database. Still, what else yeah. can a navigator do? Work in navigation. Uh, work with the FAA in designing some procedures, instrument procedures, visual procedures that we can put in the flight management system. Okay. And I love doing it. And it's just, uh, it's just a great thing. I mean, I've always dreamed of, you know, and it was a far off, stupid dream, but have have them equip you know they did it with the b-52 they made they they keep upgrading it with newer systems this airplane's what 80 years old now and it's like why couldn't they do that with the f-111 why couldn't they make it stealth or you know something you know and do something with avionics so that it'd be modern day but and then have and have the even bigger dream of like hey let's bring the 60 year old back into the cockpit you know <laughs> and see what he can do but hey, john glenn went back into space at 70 something or other right so uh, i uh you know it's 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 okay. always back there but no I, like when bob you know that chapter's over yeah. and god has done an amazing thing in my life with where i'm at right now and i love what i'm doing and i still have these connections with the guys from the squadron we meet up every couple of years and, yeah. and talk about war stories and tell lies and have a great time well as you get older it doesn't matter because you can't remember the lies true. Or the facts anyway so and that's why the matching shirts, was that from a recent uh, reunion? It or? was the uh, dedication of the F-111 memorial at Wright-Patterson Air Force oh, Base. Wow. That happened last Very year. Very cool. And so yeah. we coordinated. Yeah. Okay, good. We did that much. I thought I asked. I, made, I don't know if I have a white polo, but anyway. So uh, nobody's going to rip you out of that seat that you're in, uh, that you're enjoying just because you're going to hit a certain birthday? No, not at all. <laughs> no, I can stand as long as I want. And right. I'm right now measuring the days, but it's, yeah. I'll probably be doing it for a little bit. All right. Call sign. Tell uh, the story of your call see, sign. See, now he's, he's still he getting me to back to the other story. Uh, uh, no, no I, just, I, did, we, I, I didn't want to make sure we didn't leave Now, first off, do you spell it with all caps? Because then maybe it's an acronym. No, it's not. It's, okay. It's uh, basically, it was June of uh, 1990, and uh, we're Doug and I, oddly enough, the guy I was crewed with, yep. were on a mission to support the uh, German Air Force. Our mission was to fly a low level in Germany, do an airfield attack on Buchel. Air base in Germany. While we did that, they launched the tornadoes to intercept us to try to take us down. You know, and it's part of their ORI. And then that's a that's like a operational readiness inspection. So basically, we do the airfield attack. Everything is normal. They come after us. They intercept us. Everything's cool. And we're number two in a two ship. 
we come in and land. Number one is landing. Uh, we're down normal, normal approach. Doug and I are on short final. We touch down. Everything's normally it takes about three, four, five thousand feet to land that thing. We actually stop the airplane in less than a thousand feet. It just came to a stop, and I'm like, "What the f- just happened?" <laughs> I look over at Doug. I go, "Take a look out your side. Do you have anything going on over there?" And he goes, "I got a flat tire." And I'm going. I got 20 feet of flames. Get out of the airplane. Egress. So we ended up shutting the airplane down, going to the front of the airplane, and we're looking back at our airplane totally engulfed in flames. And uh, fire trucks are already out there and everything. So we, what happened was was a brake control valve got loose. Uh, both tires locked up when we touched down. Blew both tires, and we just skid down the runway. Sled did an excellent job of keeping the airplane on the runway, and uh, that's how we got our call sign, sled and rim. So basically, my, as you probably guessed, the wheels were ground down to the rims, mm-hmm. and that's how I got my call yeah. sign. Well, and you should have gotten an honorary like naval aviator uh, hook or patch or something. That's, that's <laughs> pretty much what we do, and I'm a little less than a thousand. Even, but, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. Comes so, to halt pretty quick. Yeah, we we so we spent a week in at Bouchelle drinking beer and wine on the Rhine, and boy, they fixed our airplane. It was, it was yeah. not not a bad. Deal. No, not bad at all. <laughs> but you did say the word ejects. So let me ask: uh, Did you ever have to do that? Because F one eleven was different than all the others. We talked about that on episode one. No, thankfully no. No. How about you? Uh, New guys who did. Okay. Yeah. Splash. Yeah. No, we had. Yeah. We had call signs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The whole cockpit went. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That sounds. I don't know. Weird to me. I never ejected anyway. Thank goodness. But. Well, the reason was we spent so much of our time in very thick air, going very fast, that with the ejection seat technology of the time, there was no way you're going to get out of the airplane and not flail to death, be scattered yeah. all over the landscape. Huh. So the cockpit. The entire cockpit actually is some of the uh, leading edge extensions that come up to fair end that back about that far and then about just in front of the windscreen whole thing went 35,000 pound thrust rocket and uh, that and then it had parachute and it comes and it, it was like it wasn't zero zero seat I think it was uh, zero and 50 knots maybe mm-hmm. airbags would come out for a feather light 35G touchdown. <laughs> or if you land in water. Yeah, or if you land in water. But the, everybody who jumped out ended up shorter. Seriously, they yeah. about an inch shorter because it just spine. hit the ground a freaking ton. Uh, Better than the alternative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of my uh, my closest buddy at uh, Cannon when I was a lieutenant died in an injection yeah. that went, went wrong. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. All right, well, on happier news, though, maybe, uh, you're not Robert, you're Jeff. How did yes. we come up with Gwen Bob? You know, that is probably the lamest call sign ever. <laughs> I, That's kind you of know what, you, you get call signs from, like, really one or two. It's either a play on your word, on your name, Jello. That's right. Yeah, that's right. so that's one way. The other way is you do something notorious and regrettable, mm-hmm. typically. Generally, yeah. 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 And I never, I just blended into the background. I never really did anything notorious or regrettable, and my name is lame. You can't do anything. Well, that was witnessed, arguably. Yeah, well, right? Unless that, you really say, were the second as far As, as yeah. far as anyone knows. <laughs> That's right, okay. And I think I, when I was a canon, somebody just gave up and just started calling me Gwyn Bob. And it's like, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. And I got to Hayford, totally different group of people. And somebody else said, okay, Gwyn Bob it is. Yeah, okay. somebody else. It happened yeah, twice, yeah. We'll, just, we'll just say. <laughs> you can just show up and pretend you're like. Oh, they, those guys wanted to call me and then, like, come up with some no, cool name? No. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you probably never met another Gwyn Bob. No, it's, no. Yeah. I haven't met another Jell-O. I've met a Jelly. 
Yeah. Uh, and for a while, when I used to put a lot of foof in my hair, they would spell it with a G instead of a J. So that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. You got the patch, right? It's in Jello. Yeah, I don't know if I have any here or not, but I have a whole bunch at home. Anyway, good stuff, guys. Well, I'm glad you uh, persisted at me. I know I was a little bit hard to reach there for a while. Apologies for that. But what did I not ask you about your experiences in Desert Storm flying the F-111? I think you covered the territory. Yeah. Good stuff. All right, guys. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, Thank great you. time. Glad you could come down here. Thanks a lot. This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation-themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.